How should we be looking at closers in 2021 drafts? I'll ask Jason Collette from Rotowire and Fangraphs Podcasts and Derek Van Riper from The Athletic next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 2nd. It's show number 9 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Toot Out Tuesday edition for you with two great guests. First, our feature interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire and Fangraphs discussing how the changing distribution of saves affects the closer market. Big risers and fallers between two experts' drafts and his Boons and Bane's bold predictions. And then we'll have our second feature interview with Derek Van Riper from The Athletic discussing where to take closers, how to pick your draft slot, his top player list versus Baseball HQ's projections, and his boons and banes, the regular kind, although I'm confident they'll also be very bold. It's another big Tootout Tuesday edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We have Jason Collette. We have Derek Van Riper on one show. we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tootout Tuesday edition, our expert interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire and Fangraphs Podcasts. Jason, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, thanks for having me back. How you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. Very excited, of course. The games have started. And uh, before we get on to anything else, I'm curious, Jason, I know you watch baseball very intensively. Uh, when spring training starts, the temptation is to really think we're seeing something. The cautionary note is be careful because you might not be seeing something. When you look at a spring training game, what are you looking for? Uh, I'm looking for things that I can't read about. Uh, I, I want to see I, or, or validate things I have read about. So, like, I want to see mechanical changes. So, you know, we talked about, you know, when Lucas Giolito went from the worst pitcher in baseball to a Cy Young winner, you know, it was quick to see early on that, hey, there was a mechanical change. So something, his future could change if he's changing mechanics. So I want to see pitchers that have shortened their arm action, changed their arm angle, see, look for differences. And the same thing with hitters. I want to see hitters who are doing something differently with their stance, hands higher, hands lower, open, closed. They're, they're making changes for a reason. And then typically those things get observed, then they get written about, or conversely, they get written about, then they're observed. But I, I'm I'm looking for those types of things. Everything else is, is really kind of noise to me. Uh, you know, we can see you know, even even in-game radar guns are not very reliable. So you want to like Jeff Zimmerman, Jeff Zimmerman does a great job of tracking spring training velocities. Um, and it's easier to do in Arizona than it is Florida, but it's getting better as those parks are getting uh, modernized in the Grapefruit League. Uh, so, you know, those types of things, seeing who's throwing, like this morning I was reading that McCullers is already sitting 95, 96. And then Otani hit 100 yesterday in workouts. Um, I'm still taking that Otani news with a grain of salt. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, obviously something to track and see what happens in the game. So I try to look for that and then try to ignore like where guys are hitting. Cause often it's just, you know, they're trying to get some guys at bats, especially players that are out of options. They, you know, they want to make sure that they're getting enough looks at those guys or, or providing other teams looks at those guys. So they have potential trade partners and type of thing. So it's more what I can observe rather than what I read during spring training. 
I've actually read that sometimes the batting orders are moved around because some of the players have golf tee times and they and they go to the manager and say, look, I got to be out of here by, you know, X time. Can you put me at the top of the order so I can get my two at bats and bail? And, and a lot of times they will, because why not, right? There's a million guys to look at, especially early on. I don't know if that's true, but I believe that it might be because I've, I've read, I read about it in a lot of places. Now, when you're watching and observing for these uh, things that you talked about, what are you wary about? Uh, what I'm worried about is, is, you know, you see, like, take putting too much into one appearance, uh, one inning, one at bat, uh, you know, the different, uh, different things in there, especially on the pitching side, because I'm always you know, looking for something like, oh, boy, he's, you know, he's not throwing well. Uh, you know, if you are a Corey Kluber fan, you know, his outing, his in-camp outing the other day when his own teammates were beating him up was a little disconcerting. Then again, his own teammates are a pretty damn good lineup too. So <laughs> that's that's another thing to factor in. You got to weigh which one do you which one are you more worried about? The fact that a really good lineup was taking him to the woodshed, uh, or the fact that Corey Kluber, a notorious slow starter, is once again starting slowly. Uh, so it's really putting too much into it. And you have, again, you got to use the larger um, the larger body of work. But the whole premise of this entire prep in this offseason and in, in the draft season this year is we're starting at, we're, we're playing an unknown territory there is no baseline we don't have anything to look at because of how crazy 2020 went and skewed everything for us the spring training seasons do generate statistics do you review them and what are you looking for in the spring training stats who's playing when they're pitching uh, type of thing uh you know you we the higher the higher guys are hitting the lineup is obviously uh, that means there's more importance uh, observations being put on them when they're pitching. Like if we're, if a guy's, let's say a, a guy that was on the 26 man, 28 man roster, whatever last year is putting up big numbers, but you see him putting up big numbers later in the game when it's against prospects. Eh. If the guy is, if he's doing it early in the game, when the, when the major leaguers are in the lineup, that's different. So it's it's a matter of when these guys are doing their numbers in spring training. Obviously, um, weighing in the fact that cactus league cactus league numbers are going to be big um, uh, traditionally, and grapefruit park uh, uh, grapefruit uh, league numbers depending on where they play. That you know much much attention is being placed on Dunedin uh, because Toronto is just going to stay there uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, for the major league season, I mean, you follow the Jays, you know that Dunedin tends to be a more offensive park during spring training. It's very close to the water. Uh, they get the the favorable winds blowing out, uh, typically to left and left center. Uh, the way the park is is uh, positioned there, uh, of, I think maybe half a mile to a mile inland uh, from the bay, if memory serves me correct, because my parents used to live right up the road from. Um, at the time, I believe it was called Florida Power Park, uh, but right up the road from it. So we'll see how that uh, that situation plays out in particular. But uh, you know, we really just got to put take things in context. Well, Jason, as we speak, we're about six weeks into the new year, and we're about six weeks from opening day. So kind of in a middle point. How many drafts have you done so far? <laughs> one. <laughs> it's been a weird off season. I, I've, I've done one. Uh, and in fact, I did it in December for the Rotowire Draft Magazine. So I have yet to have a 2021 draft myself. Now, I've done a lot of observations of what's been happening in the marketplace. Uh, I just haven't had yet had the opportunity to put uh, that into practice. Now, my first one starts tomorrow, TGFBI, uh, the four-hour slow draft. That starts, that starts tomorrow. 
uh, for me. So that'll be my first one uh, that I have. And then we've got uh, Labor uh, coming up this weekend. And that'll be, and then we've got Tout Wars two weekends after that. So draft season kicks off for me right now. Obviously, the big strategic theme this year has been pushing up starting pitchers. How are you planning to manage your, your drafting of starters this year? You know, I think I, I believe you and I talked about this right around this time last, uh, uh, not right around this time last year, but as we got into uh, into uh, the, during the break between spring training and summer camp, I talked about how pitching was going to change a bit. Uh, but even we may have even talked about this heading into uh, Towers weekend uh, because, we, you know, the writing was on the wall. What was going to happen at that point? Uh, and I believe I talked about changing the way I attack pitching because we knew it was going to be an uncertain season. Um, and I'm taking that same approach. It worked really well for me last year. I mean, I struggled offensively, but for the most part, uh, the pitching played out the way I thought it would. And my teams were positioned as such. So they they perform better pitching wise um, with that. And so, you know, I'm still concerned about how teams are going to handle workloads. Uh, again, we don't have the baseline. Uh, so we don't know what, what are going to happen, what's going to happen. And we can, well, I've got a specific example when we get to uh, towards the end of the, of the show that I want to bring up on that. But, you know, I think Todd Zola made an excellent point about a week ago and said, you know, some of these teams that went deep into the postseason. Uh, typically that's a, a, a hindrance heading into the next season when you look at workload, but this year it's a benefit. Like you look at Tyler Glass now, um, specifically, a guy that threw 56, 56 in the third during the regular season, but then threw 28 and two-thirds in the postseason. So when people talk about it, only threw 56, now he really threw, if I did my math right, 85 innings uh, there. So he's got a bit of a head start in some of these other pitchers. And that, that's something we all we have to factor that in because you know teams – forever have said, you know, they, they want to be cautious about how much they increase workload year over year, especially on the younger arms. And I can't imagine that all these clubs are going to just throw that away and say, yeah, you know, whatever it's 2021, we'll put 2020 behind us and move forward. And these guys that are typically in the 180 plus are going to be, are just going to pick up where they left off. Uh, even if they do, how are they going to hold up? Are they going to be are those right arms and left arms going to be dragging out to the pitcher's mound as the dog days of summer get to us? Uh, and so that's something to factor in. So for me, when I'm attacking pitching, uh, I'm I'm looking at some of the approaches that major league clubs are taking. I mean, you look at what Anaheim's doing and, and just throwing quantity at the uh, at the roster, and then they don't have a great you know they don't have that one guy that you can point to and be like, that's our guy. Like they have a whole handful of dudes that are just going to suck up innings. Um, and uh, many clubs are talking about a six man rotation, trying to, trying to set themselves up like that. Uh, and so that's how I, uh, that's how I'm planning on attacking my things is I, uh, I just don't see, you know, even heading into, you know, we've always said, Oh, Justin Verlander, safest guy. Well, Verlander got hurt too. And it's like, even the safest dudes can get hurt. Uh, and, I see a lot of people reaching out and, and taking pictures in the first round. I'm not complaining about it, but it really dictates how you're going to put the rest of your team together. And I just, my personal observation is the the marketplace and projections are, are being too optimistic about how many innings starting pitchers are going to perform this year. I see uh, a lot of the, I've, I've made the reference on Twitter a few times, teams approaching this like a college baseball pitching staff. Some teams have that Friday night starter, and then they piece together the rest of the weekend. Uh, and I see a lot of clubs doing that this year, where you may have piggyback starters, you may have you know more hindrance to the 
or more adherence rather to the times of the order penalty two times and you're out. And then we'll let the rest of the roster uh, soak it up. Now, last year was a little easier to do that because teams had the 28 man roster uh, with the 30, then with the 28, but you had that larger roster and you had a 14 man uh, pitching staff. So it was a little easier to do that this year. They'll have to, they can't be as liberal with how they employ that, but that's how I'm looking at the, uh, the, the uh, landscape this year. Most of the discussion of pitching strategies, Jason, is usually done by people who are focusing on 15-team mixed leagues because that's obviously by far the most popular format. But a lot of us still play in single leagues, uh, AL and NL only. Do you think that the two aces at the top of the draft or two aces with a, a large party or auction budget makes as much sense or any kind of sense when you're talking about deeper leagues where you have fewer options? Well, let's say, I mean, let's take... Uh, tout and labor uh, that we're in, you know, that's 12 teams. There's going to be a few teams that do it. Somebody's going to have to do it. It's like nobody can, the entire league can't just all go one direction. Somebody's got to do one thing and somebody's got to do another uh, with it, but you know, it's how much risk you're willing to uh, absorb there. Uh, so to me, it almost dictates what you're going to do downstream and your, uh, and the reserve rounds too. I mean, typically a lot of guys like to, you know, in, in, uh, Tout, we have four reserve picks, and Labor, we have six. Uh, and in in depending on that league, again, in Labor, you could still you could still balance out your reserve roster. So if there's a, a position player that you have, you and and the and the potential backup didn't get drafted, it's a good chance to to get that guy as well. Uh, but you know, in in Tout, like if you invest heavily in the pitching side and you want to spread your risk out, you may spend three of your four picks in the reserves on more pitching just so. You you don't get caught empty-handed. I mean, we saw so many teams last year, and you know, my team got beat up by it last year in town. Uh, even though I had, uh, and I just really adjusted my strategy because I could, I saw how things were going, and I wasn't going to be. I got really beat up off um, with uh, offensive injuries. So then I just said, uh, you know, I'm putting all of my eggs in the pitching basket uh, and trying to get to the the the, the, the uh, minimum threshold on. Uh, on points. Uh, so I just started chasing every pitching point I could uh, because that was my path forward. Once I realized that you know, I couldn't, sus- I think I had seven major offensive injuries in the first two and a half weeks of the season. It was just unsustainable. Uh, but yeah, I, I could see people spending more reserve round picks on pitchers and not just closer specs uh, like uh, people are, are, are often do. I can see them just saying, Oh, here's a guy that I may be able to, uh, do matchup starts with depending on where he's pitching i'm going to take him and just increase my depth so it'll be very interesting to see how it impacts the uh the reserve round strategy this year uh, based on how people construct their their active roster draft and something you said a moment ago jason about uh, looking at a pitcher who got a lot of extra innings throughout the playoffs i think you mentioned glasnow and uh, Gene McCaffrey said earlier this year on Baseball HQ Radio, we should be looking at all the players who had long playoff runs and incorporating those stats into what they did last year in terms of making projections for this year because not only are they real innings and real at-bats, but they're real innings and at-bats at the highest level of pressure against the, theoretically anyway, the best possible competition. So if somebody had a really nice playoff run, something that we should take into account when we're figuring out how might they play this year because they they proved it on a great big stage and conversely if they flopped then maybe that is an indication that the, at at the highest levels of the game these guys may not be as ready as we'd like yeah absolutely and i i love that point by gene because it allows you to i mean we we always want to get 
largest sample size possible. And we had that option with uh, with that. And then even if we focus on pitching, you know, it's often said, you know, a, a, a postseason inning is not equal to a regular season inning. Some people have factored it to one and a half innings. Some people said, you know, by the time you get to the world, the uh, the CS and the World Series, it's two innings pitch. It feels, you know, two innings uh, for every uh, a, a postseason inning feels like two regular season innings type of thing. So, you know, getting back to Glasgow, if we take that math in particular, then all of a sudden is 56.1 becomes 120 yeah, uh, you know, one twenty-two point two, uh, and like, okay, let, let's see how that let's see how that plays out. So, uh, I do believe that those teams that did go deeper into the postseason have that extra level of stress testing, uh, and it gives you a larger body of work. And, and not to make this all things Tampa Bay, but I'm just uh, encouraging people go look at Manny Margot and look at how poorly Manny Margot performed in July and August, and then look at September and October. So, as you're trying to put together your evaluation of how you value Margot this draft season. Look at the early part of the season when he had, you know, health issues. He lost his father uh, to COVID, and then he hit September, and all of a sudden he was active all over the stolen base, uh, all over the bases, stealing bases, but wasn't hitting for power. Then he gets into October and he found his power. And so you look at that body, look at that entire body of work, and it's a lot more attractive than what you saw for just the 2020 regular season. And the naysayers say, yeah, but it's still a, such a small sample. You can't really put that much stock into it. I think the trick is going to be finding the balance between what might have just been a hot streak and just uh, versus rising to the occasion in a literal performance sense. Exactly. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Jason Collette from Rotowire and Fangraphs Podcasts. And Jason, you have a regular column at Rotowire called Collette Calls, and you had a column very recently, I think, called The Changing Marketplace. And this was really interesting. Before we start talking about players, though, uh, how did you assess the changing marketplace and what did you mean by it? So I took the mixed labor uh, draft results from uh, February 7th, uh, and then I compared that to the the mock draft that we did for the Rotowire Draft Magazine, which took place uh, December 21st, I believe it was. So, uh, or maybe even a little earlier than that, there was about a 60-day gap between the two. And so I wanted to see, you know, what has changed in the offseason. When we do those early mock drafts for uh, publication purposes, yeah, you know, the, the market's unset. I mean, the free agent market normally is just taking place at that point. Uh, but this year, it you know, it had barely started. And so we were basically just drafting off how rosters were looking in 2020 and making assumptions. But you get to you get to labor and then we've got a better feel for how lineups are going to look. And we still have notable free agents out there without contracts. You know, Jackie Bradley Jr. and Jake Odorizzi are two that come to mind. Uh, but for the most part, we've got a good feel for what's changed, you know, trades, uh, players traded, opening up opportunities, different things like that. And so I just like to take a look at all right, what's changed and why has it changed uh, for to see it, to help other people plan for their own draft. So as they look at things, uh, they can see that, oh, hey, there has been, uh, you know, there's there's been a shift in the marketplace because, you know, we will we'll lean on ADPs. But if you just look at the entire offseason, you miss recency bias. So it's, it's always great to go to NFBC and say, OK, instead of saying from October 1st to whatever today's date is, show me the last two weeks. Show me the last four weeks and see where where the needle's moving. In this case, I just use the baseline of a mid-December draft to a to a, a early February draft. And then you presented basically all the guys who had f- risen or fallen by more than 100 slots, which is a pretty huge increase or decrease, about six rounds, six and a half rounds. So that's something that 
do- does merit our attention. Uh, I'd like to start with some relief pitchers because these are the ones that really caught my eye, starting with Amir Garrett. I've been hearing good things. What's the value proposition for an increase there? Yeah, I mean, with, with Rossiel Iglesias being traded to Anaheim, that opened up the opportunity for a, a, for a, a trio of relievers in Cincinnati at the time to trade. You know, with Amir Garrett, uh, TJ Antone, and Lucas Sims, you know, those three guys, all high-quality arms. You know, I've seen uh, Doug Dennis write it up in, in his reliever uh, his reliever column, makes great points. You know, and since that, since that trade, Lucas Sims, you know, his elbow, they reported about two weeks ago that his elbow was barking. Uh, and so that that fades him out and now you've got Garrett uh Garrett versus Antone uh and you have to look at the situation Garrett says he wants the job uh, he's performed like he, he could have the job lefty high velocity has the really nice slider has the 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 bulldog mentality you know closer screams closer but then you run into the other risk of he's the only lefty in that bullpen uh type of thing and and maybe Cincinnati just goes out and grabs somebody and and, and solves that problem but that's always something you have to give some credence to um, when a club is heavily slanted towards the right side and they only have one lefty and they have a quali- a qualified guy to take that job as a righty, and, and I believe T.J. Antone is that guy, uh, then that becomes problematic. So, you know, Garrett, even going 220 in labor is not like it's a huge – yeah, it was a 160 160- – pick jump from the mock because the opportunity opened up uh, with that. But if this was still a Glacius we were talking about in Cincinnati, he would have been gone before 220. And in fact, both uh, at the time, you know, both Anton uh, and and Sims had, were, they were going, you know, this was before the Sims was, but the, they weren't drafted too far uh, down um, below. And even their ADP was all three of those Reds relievers were, were tightly packed um, there. So it'll be interesting to see how that situation plays out. Uh, and the, until, until David Bell comes out and says, this is our guy, uh, then you could see Garrett get into the top 200. But right now this, the uncertainty of it, maybe it could be Antone because Garrett's the only lefty is what's keeping him you know, at a, at a value really. I mean, cause again, if, if he's named the full-time guy, he's got the potential to easily get into the top 200 and even perform uh, into uh, the top 100, 150. Uh, over the season, if he were to hold that job for the entirety. In Tampa, Pete Fairbanks rose more than 100 picks, but I know a lot of people, and perhaps you included, uh, would be a little bit dicey on him appearing at the sort of 298 mark, which is around the 20th round. The expectation is he's got great stuff, could be a lot of saves in a good Tampa Bay situation, but they have other options, and as you have pointed out in the past, they're very comfortable with spreading the saves around. Yeah, they, again, folks, they they were, what really annoyed me is they were, at the final game of the season, there was a save opportunity, and I forget who could have come in, and it had that person come in and close the game out, the Rays would have broken the single season record for pitchers with saves, and had done so in a 60-game season, right? So the record was 12, now they're tied for it, but 12, and that was that was with, uh, I want to say it was the Kansas City Athletics and the Texas Rangers, and this was back in the early, late '60s, early '70s, when the saves were retro uh, retro awarded uh, once they uh, put the stat through. Uh, so that's what that's where things were. I mean, this is two consecutive seasons now that Tampa Bay has used ten or more relievers to earn a save, uh, and I, I ran some numbers. I have a, my uh, latest collect calls just went into the editor last night, and uh, so that'll be out by the time. 
uh, everybody's hearing this, but I went through and looked at managerial trends and Kevin Cash's era every year, eight on the average, eight pitchers are earning saves under his watch uh, in Tampa Bay, 8.2. It leads the league. No other pitcher, no other manager is using relievers for saves as frequently as Kevin Cash does. So for me, and I'm saying this as somebody who has Pete Fairbanks in my in my home AL only league, and I have him for seven dollars, uh, and I'm waffling on whether I want to keep him because I can see, yeah, I've got him, uh, but and he could get some of the saves, but so could Nick Anderson, and so could Diego Castillo, and so could. Uh, any pitcher that's in that roster and just because it's what's happened each of the past two seasons. It is definitely a matchup who's available. Let's throw them at the, let's throw them at the situation. So um, I hesitate uh, to recommend taking, I mean, the 20th round's a 20th round, whatever. Uh, but if you're looking at it, it's like, Oh, Nick Anderson's like, I think Nick Anderson, or I believe rather Nick Anderson's being overdrafted right now because people are like, yeah, the postseason, whatever, you know, we saw what he was able to do in the regular season. He was awesome. And, and that's fine. But, you know, Nick Anderson is only a season removed from not getting a single safe and being leveraged in the seventh and eighth inning. So you have to look at the history of that situation, understand Kevin Cash will use whoever he wants to uh, and, and cares not about your fantasy team. And the interesting thing, all three of the the guys in Tampa that are at the head of the line or appear to be Nick Anderson, Diego Castillo, you mentioned, and Peter Fairbanks, all have great stuff. And so it almost exacerbates the problem because when Cash looks around for a pitcher, it's not like he has to go, well, Anderson is by far the best guy out here on a skills basis, but in this particular situation, I have to hold my nose and throw in Diego Castillo or hold my nose and throw in Fairbanks. These are all really good pitchers, so these are all really good options for Kevin Cash under certain circumstances. Yeah, and you know, one of the ways the game has changed, I'm talking about real baseball, is there used to be... I have my seventh inning, my eighth inning, my ninth inning guy. You hear your managers talk about that and players wanting to like let me know my role. And I think now the game has evolved until you have an A bullpen and a B bullpen. Uh, and if you're up in the game uh, and it's a close game, you're leveraging your A bullpen. Uh, if you're down in the game, you're down 4-2 in the sixth inning, you're leveraging your B bullpen. But if the game switches... At least you've got somebody you don't you can't exhaust your you're trying to avoid rather exhausting your the entirety of your A bullpen so you get into a game late and all of a sudden all you have is your B bullpen options. Um, you want to avoid those situations, but they can't always be avoided. But this every every game can't be the same script. You're up five two. Okay, I'm bringing in my seventh, my eighth, my ninth every single time. Those guys eventually have to have a day off. And again, looking at this season. We don't know how these relievers are going to hold up over the entirety of a full season, given the lift that they had to do in 2020. When you were reviewing uh, Tampa's bullpen usage last year and you noticed that they had all of these different guys, was it the case that a lot of the one and two save guys were those B bullpen guys who just got into the game in the right situation, maybe got five outs in a, what turned out to be a runaway type of situations rather than high leverage, tense, close situations? There were times last year where it just surprised me uh, of who Cash was calling on. You know, like, oh, that's the guy that's going to come in right now? But it, it really became situation dependent on what they wanted to do. I mean, with, again, when you looked at when you looked at everybody that they had, Nick Anderson led the team with six, but then you had Diego Castillo with four, and 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 Cash really leaned on him for situations where there were multiple guys on base, and he were, was hoping for a double play, keeping the ball in the infield because Diego Castillo and his slider, when everything's working well, and his sinker 
is tough to elevate. Uh, now, as long as he doesn't hang one and get it banged, uh, that's where some problems would run into. But, you know, there was times where he would lean on him. John Curtis, Oliver Drake, Aaron Slagers. I mean, these are all household names, right? You know, these guys uh, each had uh, two or more saves, but then the rest of the bullpen was single digits. Uh, you know, Anthony Bonda before he blew out his elbow had one. Jalen Beeks before he got hurt had one. Edgar Garcia had one at the end of the season. Andrew Kittredge before he blew out his elbow had one. Chaz Rowe, Ryan Sheriff, uh, and Ryan Thompson. Those are the, all the names that had saves for the club last year. So some of them were situation dependent. Some of them were it's a beat bullpen day, and oh my God, we we came up late, and you know Anderson and Castillo aren't available. We got to find somebody to come in here and pitch it. Uh, Chaz Rose, one I remember specifically because it was righty, 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 and there were no lefties on the bench, and so his slider was the perfect matchup uh, for that, and, and it worked out well. There was a surge in interest in the Yankees' Zach Britton, which seems a little bit odd given the relative certainty of Eroldis Chapman in the closer role. Yeah, that one surprised me uh, when I saw that. I mean, it's and it's not that, and it's not that uh, you know. Uh, there's problems with Chapman. It's just one of the one of the weirdness, and I this is one of the things I looked at uh, in looking at the managerial usage. Now, if, looking at saves over the last three years in the Aaron Boone era, and and for the for the Yankees, Chapman by far running away with with the saves total, obviously. But in the in the three years of Aaron Boone's run the club, Aroldis Chapman has sixty four percent of the Yankee saves. So one-third of them are going somewhere else, or just over one-third are going somewhere else, and Zach Britton's next. I mean, Chapman's had 72 of the 113. Britton's had 14 of those. David Robertson no longer around. Louis Sessa, I think, uh, I think is nowhere around anymore. Dylan Batanza's not there anymore. Chad Green is still there, but it's like Zach Britton is, has been the next guy. Uh, and so perhaps people are like, okay, this is year Chapman's going to take a step back. I'm going to get in on Britain. I mean, Britain should have value in his role, whatever whatever it's going to be. He's going to pitch a high leverage innings. The Yankees uh, have the type of offense where they can catch up from behind, and if Britain's in there, he can vulture some wins. So it depends on how your league is, you know, your scoring systems in your league. He's Britain's going to have value, uh, and if something happens to Chapman if he gets hurt. Then voila, we have something there. Uh, so, but I it would just kind of stunned me to see him jump that high because that's the kind of jump you see from somebody you're expecting. Like I would expect to see that from Blake Trinan with what we saw from Kenley Jansen last year in the postseason, where Kenley Jansen started to look human. Uh, and, you know, for a guy that was the, in the last five years in 2016, Jansen is the only pitcher who has earned a hundred percent of a club saves in any one season over the past five years. And now we saw him, you know, uh, we saw Dave Roberts, reticent to use him in certain postseason situations last year so i could see like hey let's let's take a jump on blake trinan i'm just not seeing the the impetus behind i've got to push i got to reach out here for zach Britton because chapman is on the is a big risk this year and to be fair we should point out that the labor draft zach Britton went 332nd i think which is pretty close to the end of the last round so it's not like he jumped up into the middle of the pack by any stretch he just jumped up from the low reserves into the actual draft which is a it's a significant jump but we shouldn't overstate its importance um any starting pitchers of note on the climbers list Mitch Keller. I mean, I like Mitch Keller, and he went 100. He went 116 picks higher than he did in the, in the Rotowire mock draft. But Mitch Keller still pitches for Pittsburgh, and that team's really bad. And if you're in a uh, if your scoring system is still based on wins instead of quality starts, 
um, which are still getting tougher to get, but you know, or innings pitched, it's tough to see the the, the reason why Mitch Keller jumped. And I like Mitch Keller coming into last year, but Pittsburgh was a better team than they are this year uh, with that. And then Corey Kluber, you know, I guess that's the Yankee tax. He went from two sixty one to one fifty six uh, just by signing, uh, and. That I'm not buying it. I mean, I really I'm in the other corner of I'm worried about Kluber. And I know I talked about him earlier. He's saying slow starter got beat up by his teammates type of thing. Um, but you know, again, we're talking about a pitcher that's pitched 36 innings over the past two seasons that's dealt with a skeletal and a muscular injury uh, after pitching an insane amount of innings for six straight seasons running. Uh, and so I have my concerns with him because we saw them when he was on the mound before he got uh, beamed by the liner that broke his arm in 19. Um, you can say slow starter or what you will, but you know his stuff is declining. Uh, the, the fastball, and he's got he, yeah, he maybe can pitch slider cutter the whole time, uh, but you still have to be able to use the fastball to set those pitches up. Uh, and I didn't like what I was seeing in 2019, and I am not on board taking Kluber this high in drafts myself. On the hitting side amongst the climbers, uh, you saw justification for big jumps by Colton Wong and Jock Peterson. Is this strictly because they're both on new teams and possibly better situations? Yeah, and, and I really like the Wong one myself here because when you look at the, the when you look at Wong's skills and where he ended up landing, it's a great fit. I mean, he has as we're all looking for the stolen bases, we know Wong does like to run. He's still the 24 bases in 2019. Now he's going to a club where the manager loves to run. Craig Council is an aggressive manager, um, and the ballpark's a better fit. He goes from St. Louis to Milwaukee with, with Wong, so I really like the landing spot for him uh, here. Now, going from 311 to 172, that's, you know, he was a free agent to I have a job in a really nice in a really nice location under a manager that fits my skills. I get that. And the same thing with Peterson. And Peterson went from a reserve role to a starting role uh, and potentially a situation where he's not going to be platoon. They, you know, the, the Cubs may say, you know what, play. And, you know, the Dodgers really never gave Peterson a chance to hit lefties because he couldn't. When he did, he looked terrible. And the numbers play that out. But it's still a small sample size. It takes a while for that stuff to figure out. And then, you know, maybe Peterson plays out like Max Kepler did in 2019. You look at Kepler's previous years, and Kepler couldn't hit lefties. Then in 19, all of a sudden he could hit lefties, and then last year he forgot how to hit lefties. But, you know, anything can happen in a year. Maybe this is that year for Peterson where he has the opportunity in a very nice offensive park to play every day. And so I, I'd like to see those two guys jump as they did. On the other hand, Jason, how can we explain big jumps for Shohei Otani and Oscar Mercado? I mean, Oscar Mercado was just terrible. Yeah, I know shoulder shrugs don't come through well on audio, but that's what I'm doing right now is shoulder shrugging. I, 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 I'm all for writing off 2020 uh, and saying, you know, everything's crazy. But you know, to me, with the jumping, with the jumping Mercado, I mean, even with everything that happened last year, and he just he looked awful. I mean, numbers wise, but to watch and play, he didn't look like the same guy that we loved in 2019. But he had 2019 still happened, and we can't forget about it. But it's really tough to overlook how uh, how poorly Mercado looked last year. But I didn't I didn't see anything in the news or observe anything or hear anything that justifies a 125 point jump. Um, in his in his draft status, I mean, I didn't hear anything. I said, "Hey, he's put on 25 pounds. Uh, he's worked with this hitting coach. Has changed his launch angle. Um, he had uh, 
LASIK surgery. Maybe you know, last year he was blind in one eye. I mean, none of that came out. And, and here's the jump is that when I was looking at the numbers, I had to, I had to verify. I'm like, did I make a, a mistake in my Excel formula? Because how did this happen? But it was there. It's real. You also looked at guys who dropped more than 100 slots. And again, let's start with some relief pitchers because I was really curious to note that Jordan Romano's name was on the list. A lot of drafters liked him coming into the season, but of course his value took a thumping when Toronto signed Kirby Yates. But Yates is a well-established injury risk. Jason Romano falling to the 22nd round, is that a buying opportunity? Yeah, I mean, the skills are nice. Uh, and you look at, I mean, he would be a guy, as we were talking earlier, about how you treat your reserve round. So if, you, you know, if you've drafted if you drafted Kirby Yates in the active, you may need to consider taking Romano uh, at the end of the active or prioritize getting him in the reserve round. And because, you know, Yates is a, a 2019 awesome year. Last year, bone spurs. Uh, you know, Toronto has seen enough where they're willing to give him another chance. And maybe as you know, the, now the bone spurs out of his elbow, Yates can resume what he was able to do. Uh, you know, ever since he spent his the early part of his career being DFA'd by every club. I mean, he's been with the Yankees, the Rays, the, the Angels. That um, was with the Padres. And I'm missing a club uh, in this mix. But and then he learns a splitter. He picks up the splitter while he's in the Yankees bullpen. Uh Maybe he was with the Dodgers for an, I think he, the Dodgers. Uh, that's where he, or no, the Angels. So sorry, he was with the Angels. And then uh, he learned a splitter and then came to San Diego and said, I'm going to throw it. He's been awesome. Then he had the bone spur. Uh, but it's Romano's a really good insurance policy uh, to figure out what's going to happen there. But kind of like Britain, where it's, it's he's Romano should be successful in whatever role he gets, whether it's working in the higher leverage or if something happens to Gates, uh, Romano is able to step in. Looking at some hitters who dropped, uh, we'll start again in Toronto. Rowdy Tellez, I've been thinking, could be a, a target this year. He certainly changed his approach pretty drastically under uh, Dante Bichette's tutelage, but the market has clearly disagreed, sending him down about six rounds because the Jays made some signings, the playing time situation got a little crowded. Should Rowdy Tellez be considered a get down at the end of the draft, 100 picks from where he was going earlier? Yeah, I would take him as a get and, and talking, you know, we talked earlier about the club uh, playing in Dunedin for the foreseeable future uh, and and then at worst go into Buffalo, but it doesn't look like they're going to go to Rogers Center. Uh, you know, the, the the reconstructed ballpark in Dunedin, uh, tailor-made for lefty. I mean, it is, it, it's like, it's worse than Yankee Stadium for lefties. Um, it, I think the right center field's 358, uh, but it's it's smaller dimensions than right field than Yankee Stadium. So you're looking at Telez, you're like, oh boy, that could be fun uh, for him because you know that's. But he's got power to all fields, and so he becomes in the mock draft where he went 206. That was like, yeah, that was that was projecting a lot because you knew Toronto was going to spend money in the offseason. They had it, they had needs, uh, and there was rumors everywhere. But 307, now his price is, is better, and now he's actually a bargain at 307 because we don't know exactly where or how he is going to play, but things can happen. Uh, and it, you know, if somebody, if somebody were to get hurt uh, and he gets inserted in the lineup, he becomes a massive uh, a massive fab buy early. And if you can get him in your reserve round and just exercise the patience, uh, then you can be rewarded for that. Baseball HQ has Rowdy Tellez getting about 60% of the available plate appearances at DH and first base combined. And I suspect uh, if they make 
any kind of move, it could benefit Rowdy Tellez, whether it's him who goes and gets full-time somewhere or somebody else who goes and increases his. Uh, other droppers included Jonathan Villar, Wilmer Flores, and Garrett Hampson. Any sneaky value among that batch of infielders? You know, I don't really think, maybe Hampson, uh, because, you know, maybe one day Colorado will, uh, you know, be smart, uh, and and Hampson will be able to utilize his skills. I mean, he's got he's got the opportunity there more than the other guys. I'm most concerned about VR. I mean, there was a there was talk that he was landing a contract with the Reds, which would have been great. But then all of a sudden, he ended up going to the Mets, and it's really tough to to project where his path to playing time is. I mean, he has to rely on somebody getting hurt. You got Lindor at shortstop, McNeil. I mean, like VR is going to be a pinch runner. Uh, and it's really tough to figure out how he's going to get playing time. Uh, and so I'm most concerned about him. You can't reach. Yeah. If you want speed, I get it, what he's capable of, but he's got to play to do that. And if pinch running, yeah, if he's stealing, if he's stealing a pinch running, that's great, but he's not doing anything else for you. Uh, whereas Hampson could have opportunity. He can move around the diamond a little bit more. Colorado may decide, you know what, we're trading other people. Uh, and it opens up some opportunity for him. So Hampson's a guy, especially at the price at 358 there as he went for labor. I like that quite a bit. Whereas with VR, too much has to happen in front of him for his value to be realized. And you wrapped up the uh, article at Rotowire with a huge list of players who were taken in the December mock, but weren't drafted at all in mixed labor. Anybody jump off the list in that regard? Yeah, a couple of guys jumped off the list to me, uh, you know, when you look at Corey Dickerson still hitting in the middle of the Miami lineup, uh, to me, it's tough. That even in a 15-team mixed, how a guy that hits in the middle of the lineup still can't end up uh, ending up in the reserve rounds. I mean, if you're going to hit in the middle of the lineup, if you're hitting cleanup, you're going to fall into 80 RBIs over the full course of a season. All right. Uh, and so that's a possibility there. Renato Nunez could be a regular um, in Detroit. Uh, we saw what he was able to do in Baltimore. It's not the same kind of park effects, but he should have run production. And then, you know, reliever-wise, looking at looking at Scott Barlow, uh, one of the guys. You know, Doug wrote something about him the other day too. Looking at how do you how do you play behind Gre- uh, Greg Holland, uh, and says Barlow's skills are, are solid. I fully agree with that as well. When you compare him to Josh Stallman, yeah, Stallman's got the uh, triple-digit fastball, but you you line up the skills Barlow versus Stallman and just hide the names. And hide that velocity, and Barlow wins just about everything you want to see from a closer. Uh, and so for me, it's like if I'm going to spend reserve rounds, especially in a six-round reserve format, this is the type of closer spec that I want. I mean, Greg Holland's on a one-year deal. Kansas City is not going to contend this year. Kansas City could flip Holland and experience reliever to somewhere during the middle of the season or a trade deadline, and all of a sudden Barlow jumps into that role. So like he's somebody I would be prioritizing uh, in the reserve round for a mixed league format. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from Rotowire and from Fangraphs Podcasts. And uh, Jason, you're regular on the Sleeper in the Bus. You were on just uh, the other day, and you were talking about starters who are, continuing a theme, rising in the ADPs. Uh, let's start with what you thought of Garrett Richards moving to Boston and climbing up that ladder. Yeah, Garrett Richards is interesting uh, because, you know, we think back to before the injury set in and he was such an attractive pitcher because he had a very high ground ball rate, was able to get the strikeouts. And then once the injuries have set in, it's just we've we've seen glimpses of his potential, but nothing consistent. And one of the things that that really stands out to me with uh, with Richards moving to Boston is how Boston has took a similar situation in Nathan Eovaldi and has has 
found some value in Eovaldi. Yeah, but Eovaldi still has not been able to uh, to get a lot of innings. I mean, Eovaldi has, has not been able to escape injury, but Eovaldi has been a valuable pitcher when you're able to use him because Boston has made some corrections to how he was utilizing his stuff. So I could see the same kind of thing happening with Richards in Boston. And one of the things he's gotten away from in recent years is that turbo sinker that was able to generate a lot of those ground balls. And so if, if Boston turns around and says, look, man, go back to that, start using that and change up its piss, uh, his pitch mixture, you know, he could find some success again. But again, the, the injuries are likely going to happen with him because he's not been able to escape that. But if you can stream him in and out of your lineup, depending on matchups, then it could work out. So like he's somebody I really want to watch in spring training to see if he's implementing any changes. The podcast was pretty favorable about Anthony DiSclefani moving to San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, the track record, the Giants have done a really good job of late of taking pitchers that other teams have cast off and turned them into something. I mean, they Drew Smiley should be sending them a portion of his new contract from Atlanta just for saying, you know, hey, I pitched for 26 innings for you and I looked decent. And then Atlanta gave me $11 million based on those 26 innings. Where I mean, Drew Smiley had been terrible before that. He'd been released by two different clubs, and he goes to San Francisco. They do something with him, and ta-da, he's there. Um, you know, they did. Uh, they fixed Kevin Gossman, somebody that we we used to call Kevin Gascan because it, it, starters would get blown up, and here he is, an effective pitcher again. And they what they tend to do is they tend to help pitchers focus on you. Know, hey, not everything about you is terrible. There are some things you do well. And we're going to focus focus on that, emphasize that, and encourage you to do more of that. And so they've earned a track record with taking pitchers that have previously demonstrated talent and finding and, t- and finding the best in that pitcher. And Discofani, you go back and look at 2019 uh, and what he was capable of. There's some things there for him, in particular for him. It's the for me what I looked at. It was the the differences breaking balls was just not. Uh, demonstrable like the 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 slider and the the curve too close together he needs more separation to it and you know san francisco will probably take him under the hood and say look here's what you're here's what you used to do here's what you were doing last year let's fix that and see what happens so this is really a track record thing but i'm very intrigued with what these clefani can do this year in san francisco man i'm a big proponent of looking at teams who seem to know what they're doing because they can find value out of the most unlikely sources. And, and DiSclefani really isn't an unlikely source. He, he's not a terrible pitcher that has to be completely reclaimed. It sounds more to me like you're saying it's a fine-tuning thing and just optimizing. Yeah, the transmission's not shot on this one. It just, need, <laughs> just needs this fine-tuning. Tighten those uh, drive belts for sure. Uh, Josh Lindblom in Milwaukee. I, half the touts I read say I'm staying away. Half the touts are quite enthusiastic. How about you? It's it's he's an interesting guy because like the velocity is not there. And I guess that's why people want to stay away. It's like, oh, you know, his velocity is in the bottom 10th percentile. So I want to stay away. Right. But then you look at spin rate on his pitches and his spin rates in the top, you know, top 10 to 15th percentile. He And he throws the kitchen sink. I mean, you look at baseball savant and Limblom throws six different pitches and he throws them the righties and lefties. Uh, and then he's got 20 percent plus swing rate. Uh, swing and miss rates on all of those pitches. Uh, and to me, like he is very attractive to me because of his willingness to utilize his entire repertoire, use it to righties and lefties. Sometimes we'll hear about, hey, this pitcher's got three pitches. But in reality, he throws three pitches to the lefties, especially guys with change-ups. You know, I'll throw, if I'm a righty, I'm going to throw my fastball, breaking ball, and change-up to a righty. But for the lefties, 
I mean, to lefties, but for righties, I'm going to be just just the hard stuff, just the fastball and and the you know the breaking ball because I don't want to. A lot of pitchers are reticent to throw that right on right change or that left on left change, uh, but for a guy that throws six pitches and will use them all against righties or lefties and has the life on his pitches that he has. I'm very intrigued. And when you go back and you, you know go under the hood, look at the numbers, uh, and he was rather unlucky in, in the production. Like, he should have been better than he was. Uh, and so encourage folks to go watch. Is somebody that really go watch the video on to see what he's capable of. I mean, we're talking about a guy who still struck out 27% of the hitters he faced, had a, you know, 128 whip uh but the you know the gap between as era as expected era was rather sizable uh and you know for me i, I there's more here first year adjustment coming back from pitching in the offseason but i'm very intrigued by Lindblom this year Lindblom spent some time in japan uh, also coming from japan but actually a japanese guy uh kohei arihara in texas what'd you guys think yeah, you know, I don't honestly don't know what to think here. I mean, the I think the the biggest problem is he has to step into the shoes. I mean, Lance Lynn was a workhorse for this for this organization, uh, and they have to replace Lance Lynn. And you you may maybe look at it like Ari Hara can absorb some of that, and that's where I'm concerned. But my, my problem with Ari Hara, I mean, we saw Lindblom's uh, struggles last year, even though he has good stuff. Uh, Kikuchi had trouble. It's like those first year pitchers that come over. There hasn't been a really strong success story outside of Tanaka, and Tanaka feels like a unicorn to me, um, whereas these other guys have had adjustment periods. And so that's where I'm not as interested in Arihara just because of what they're expecting him to do. Like, he may have to pitch more uh, because, you know, he's coming over from Japan where he did have more workload than other pitchers. So they may be looking at him saying, you know what, because you had a full season last year, we're going to let you pitch more than the other guys. And if he's struggling and they go back and look at what Kikuchi did in his first two years in Seattle, I mean, last year, yes, see, there was some there was some under the hood, hey, this is interesting. But year one, there wasn't a lot to be intrigued about. Uh, and so I'm uh, are some somebody I'm not planning on having on my roster. And finally, Jason, I've been intrigued by Matt Boyd because of a pitch mix change that I thought was pretty interesting last season, uh, particularly a lot more change-ups and a lot fewer sliders. And it, it seemed to be working for him after a fashion. Of course, Matt Boyd, nobody needs to be told that Matt Boyd has been inconsistent and frustrating for most of his career for fantasy managers. But what's your take on Matt Boyd for 2021? Yeah, the changeup was very intriguing because he, he rolled it out in season last year and, and got some really, it looked really good. Uh, yeah, the problem with him last year is he had two different physical issues that we really didn't know much about. He had a, a problem with uh, hamstring and then he had a problem with uh, plantar fasciitis uh, as well, and you, you look at there was an offseason interview that I put on my bold prediction series that 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 says he was struggling repeating his mechanics because of the hamstring and in the foot. Uh, but and you look at the release point, like I put a graph and showing his uh, you know, his release point and his release point had gone up. It was at its highest point that it had been in any of the previous three seasons. And so what made him good, he had to change. He had to alter his mechanics to, to uh, pitch around the injuries, and it showed. I mean, he was just getting beat up last year. And some folks may look back at that and say, oh, that was just an extension of how he ended the 2019 season. Because, I mean, he did fade pretty strong um, in 2019. And so 2020 was uh, – some folks were like, hey, that just validates what I saw as he faded in 2019. 
But if he was pitching through two different injuries like that, lower half injuries, and we all know how important the lower half is to a pitcher um, because it generates the upper half, uh, you know, then it explains, okay, now I see what the problem was. But even despite that, there were still some things that were going well for him. And that changeup is, is, is that. So now that he has a more effective off-speed pitch and he can get his mechanics back in order if he's 100% healthy, then he can potentially become that top 60 pitcher that uh, that I think he can be this year. Um, and that guy that we thought that we saw in 2019 in the first half of the season, we're like, wow, this guy's taking a significant step forward. Let's not forget this is also a Detroit club who's not going to compete. Matt Boyd is, you know, this is his um, next year is his walk year. So this is the prime time for Detroit to cash in uh, and trade him to a contender. So I, I don't believe Matt Boyd's going to finish the season in Detroit, but he's somebody whose value could go up if he is traded to another club uh, during the season. And if he's pitching well and then gets moved to a, a better club, his value goes up and you get him at a nice price right now. Kind of ironic that that's what we were all thinking last year. And and he didn't get traded and his value went down, but we paid uh, top dollar on the expectation that he was going to get traded. So that would be an interesting yeah, twist. He was my Tal Wars ace. <laughs> he was my Tal Wars ace. <laughs> Jason, you have a really active and interesting uh, Twitter feed, and I'd like to talk about a chart you put up on Twitter not long ago showing the steady decline in the number of relievers with high saves totals. And just for one example, uh, in 2010, you found 29 pitchers had 20 or more saves, and in uh, 2019, that had fallen to 20. And you only had seven with 40-plus saves in 2010, but only one in 2019, the last full season. The result has been, it seems, more saves left on the table for all those other guys coming out of drafts. How does this influence your strategy for relief pitching? Yeah, and that's and that's going to be the uh, the next article that I have uh, that'll be live uh, for folks to read uh, for folks to read through. And even if we were to uh, to take out the, you know, even if we put in last year's uh, stats and put the pace that relievers were on, Brad Hand would have been the only closer to have 40 saves last year. And then Ryan Presley, Brandon Kinsler, Alex Colome, Josh Hader, and Liam Hendricks would have been the only ones that have 30. And so that gives us six pitchers with 30 or more saves over the season, which would have been half of what it was in 19. In 2019, there were 12 pitchers uh, that were there. Now we're talking about you know, six, uh, it's just really trended down. And, and that trend of 20 plus saves has dropped 31% uh, over the decade and, and 30 plus has dropped 48% just over the past five years. Uh, and one of the other things I take a look at in the article is how much we're leaving on the table um, and, and the analyst league. So I took a look and, and said, okay, what are we leaving on the table in, what are we leaving on the table in, uh, in, in, in talent and labor and found that and in the mixed league format last year, almost one of every other save was left out there on the table. Something like 61, 61% of saves were actively rostered uh, in one in one league. And it was 55%. Uh, it was 61% of saves were actively rostered in labor and 55% were actively rostered in tout. And that's the 15 team mixed format. When I took a look at the single league format that you and I are in, that was down to 80%. But three years ago, it was in the 90s. So more and more because the way the league is changing how they're using. I mean, Kevin Cash is not the only guy doing this, but multiple teams are using multiple relievers to get saves. 
And depending on the situation, Rocco Baldelli is another guy who's who's already talked about, you know, hey, Taylor Rogers, yeah, he led our team in saves, but I've also got Colome here. I've also got Hansel Robles. I've got multiple guys with the experience and I'm going to use them. So you know, we, we've gone from in a single league format where nine of every 10 saves was actively rostered. Now it's eight of every 10. And in a mixed league, we've seen that number drop from the low 80s to the mid 50s upper and low 60s just in the past three years. And so, you know, and one of the things I reference in it uh, is Todd Zola wrote a piece in his recent uh, Z Files column talking about moving from uh, saves to solds, saves plus holds, because the market the market is changing. Uh, and it, maybe it's time for us to make that adjustment in our fantasy leagues as well, because it's just we don't have this plethora of closers anymore. Uh, you know, just the, the league is using them differently and maybe we need to a- adjust our fantasy scoring game uh, to uh, to adjust so that so it, the sport is our sport is more in line with the real sport. But for now, assuming that we are playing in leagues that are using saves, it seems like there's two possible strategic approaches. One of them is make sure you get a Liam Hendricks or somebody like that early. If there's going to be a 30-save guy, it's going to be him, much like a, a starting pitching ace early in the draft. Or you can kind of lean into this idea that there's going to be plenty of saves out there and see if maybe you can build up your 30 saves over two guys and 60 saves over four and moving guys around in and out of reserve, depending on your league rules. Uh, which way do you yeah. think you're going to swing? Um, I have uh, historically swung towards the latter, uh, the latter way. I mean, even as I said earlier, I've been watching a lot of drafts and seeing how things are playing out. Even a lot of the active NFBC folks keep saying, you know, after five closers, it's wide open. And they're, everybody's like, I hate having to do this, but this is the way it is. And so there are, you know, there, I know there are owners out there that like to have two great closers. Well, if you have two great closers, you're going to pay that tax somewhere else in your draft because we know that there's there is the handful of really really good closers, and after that, it's a it honestly could be a spec game. So you can take the approach of give me one of those great five, and then I'm going to end game the rest, and that should keep me in the mix. You know, uh, trying to say I'm going to win the saves category to me feels like uh, chasing chasing gold really tough to do. But if I can stay in the mix and see how the cards play out, and again in a mixed league. We're in the past couple of years where three of every 10 saves are were not on an active roster, there's opportunity out there. So if I can give me a second tier guy, now maybe take a couple of third tier guys, something materializes. I just want to stay in the mix um, and focus my efforts elsewhere. Yeah, I was looking at the uh, Fantasy Sports Gaming Association uh, draft that they had, I don't know, 10 days or so ago. And Hendricks went in the fourth round and the guy who took him had one other pitcher and passed on Steven Strasburg, passed on Sonny Gray. And you can make your points about that Corbin Burns, but he also passed on JT Rio Muto, Pete Alonzo, Michael Conforto. This guy made a very conscious choice to eschew multi-category help to make sure that he locks in the saves. And to me, it, the opportunity cost is just too high. I would rather have somebody like an Arozarena, if you believe that, that he's going to happen, or even a Michael Conforto, Nick Castellanos, these kind of hitters, I think they represent more value at that point than you're going to get from a Liam Hendricks, and especially since you're adding a lot of risk because Liam Hendricks is not one guy carrying an entire category for you, sore elbow three weeks into the season, and you've really messed up your roster. Indeed. Indeed. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from Rotowire and Fangraphs Podcasts. And 
Jason, as you know, I like to wrap these discussions up with some boons and banes, players you think will help or hurt the fantasy teams. I'm going to take the host's privilege here, and I'm going to use this segment to highlight your terrific recurring series. Every year you have your bold predictions in Colette Calls at Rotowire. So we'll go through the divisions as you went through them, and you boldly predict a boon or a bane or both, whatever you like. Uh, let's start in the West, as you did with the American League. Who's a bold prediction, boon or bane or both? Yeah, I don't mind going both for all these except for one because I, I was very positive in one of them and I, I realized sure. I didn't have a, a bane. <laughs> so AOS for me, love Lance McCullers, hate Nate Lowe. Uh, love Lance McCullers because he's fully uh, fully recovered from the Tommy John surgery. Uh, and I Actually, I think in my prediction, I have him as a top three candidate for AL Cy Young. Uh, yeah, I love his stuff, uh, especially the development of his changeup. He's already at uh, 95, 97 here in camp. Uh, excited to see what he's capable of um, this year. And then Nate Lowe, uh, I know, yeah, he's been freed. He's got a path of playing time in Texas. But, you know, having watched a lot of him, he struggles to hit velocity. And that's somebody we got to watch with in spring training. He uh, really struggles with velocity above the belt. Uh, and the league just peppered him with it. And he never caught up to it. So if he doesn't make adjustments, uh, it could be a, it could be an ugly season for him in 2021. And in the National League West, a bold Bane Boone or both? Well, we, t- we talked about Discofani, so there, there's the bold. Uh, the bane for me is Ramel Tapia. Uh, I believe he overperformed uh, last year. Looking, and I have some numbers in the article uh, that talk about it, but if we talked earlier about Hampson's path to playing time. Tapia fades out. There's an opportunity for Hampson. Moving into the Central Divisions, back to the American League, who's a bold prediction? Uh, for me, it's Adam Eaton. Uh, I believe Adam Eaton's going to hit second for that White Sox lineup uh, rather than Yohan Moncada. I know Moncada hit there last year, but there's a lot of swing and miss in his game. Uh, and that lineup needs to keep things moving for Jose Abreu, Yasmani Grandal, Eloy Jimenez. And I believe Eaton and his on-base percentage skills are a perfect fit for that lineup. Uh, we just need Adam Eaton to uh, forget that he's always hurt and stay healthy, which is he's only done one time in the past four seasons. But that season was a very strong fantasy season, and he's in the perfect setting to do that. And then conversely, I'm I'm concerned about Tristan McKenzie, not because his stuff is bad, but Tristan McKenzie is 140 pounds in wet clothes, and he has not worked a lot of innings. And like he's the primary candidate of somebody that I'm concerned about this year. Uh, fading uh, as the season wears on because he has never pitched this much and he's just physically rail thin. Could be one of those lean athletic types, but I've seen him and yeah, he just looks skinny, frankly. Uh, he to makes you. Chris Sale look heavy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Hey, Fatso, one man to a pair of pants out there, Chris. Yeah. Uh, the Tristan McKenzie thing is interesting because even if he can get all the way through the season, you just know his innings count is going to be a lot lower than you'd like somebody who pitched an entire season as well. So I think that's a concern to think about it before you draft Tristan McKenzie. Uh, National League Central, who's a bold Booner Bane? Yeah, and this is the one I only have one because I was positive on all 10, but Avisail Garcia in, in Milwaukee uh, for a couple of reasons. One, he doesn't have to play center field this year. I mean, he had to play center when Lorenzo Cain opted out a few days into the season, uh, and it wore on him. Center field is a taxing position. Garcia just, and he admitted, I, I was not ready to do that, but I did it for the team, and it affected him at the plate. And you look at his numbers, I went under the hood and took a look, and you can see how it affected him. Uh, he also dropped. 25 to 30 pounds this offseason. Go look at the uh, video and photos of him this spring. He looks like a new dude. Uh, and so I'm excited to see how he can hold up over the course of a regular season, get back in the right field, uh, and get back to the offensive capabilities that he demonstrated from 2015 to 
2019 between the White Sox and the Rays. Before we move on, Jason, what do you make of these stories when guys come into camp? Best shape of my life is a sort of a, a meme now we make fun of, but you look at a guy like Garcia, a guy like Vladimir Guerrero Jr., these guys have dropped a fair amount of tonnage. How much stock do you put in that when you're making your assessments on how projections might improve from past performance? I always look at it as kind of a, a tiebreaker type of thing. I mean, it means a guy can hold up better over the course of a season. I mean, I, I look at it myself. Yeah, I, I've dropped 20 pounds here in 2021. I feel a lot better than I did in December. Uh, you know, here at the end, end, end of February. So it's like, I, I use it as a tiebreaker type of thing, but it doesn't, I'm not going to say I'm drafting this guy two rounds earlier because he's lost weight or he's put on all this muscle. I mean, it could, it, conversely, the guy could get hurt more because he's added he's added too much bulk to his frame and now the, now his tendons and joints don't know what to do with it and then he gets hurt. We saw a lot of that in the, um, the medicinal era, if you will, uh, of baseball. And so when guys are losing weight, that sh- in theory should help them feel better. Back to the bold predictions in the American League East. Who's a bold Boone or Bain? Boone, I'm going to go with Tanner Scott in Baltimore uh, because we don't know how that bullpen situation is going to play out uh, in in Baltimore. Hunter Harvey may be the guy, but go watch Tanner Scott pitch, and you can see where yeah, that could that could work uh, in saves. Uh, and he got a couple last year. He could probably get more this year. Uh, I I don't see I don't see Baltimore saying we're going to go with a primary closer. There's no reason for them to. And then uh, Bane for me is Bobby Dahlbeck. There's just too much swing and miss in his game. I, I went and looked at and pulled some numbers up of guys with strikeouts and how that's spelled out for some other guys. And, and the track record for that situation is really not good. Uh, you know, we look at where uh, guys that struck out 40% or more of the time in the, in the first season. And I bring up a lot of, uh, names that are painful reminders of folks like Tyler O'Neill, Keon Broxton, you know those types of uh, those types of players, uh, Brett Jackson. Uh, and so it, there, there's some bad history against that. And so for me, uh, I, I'm really not on the Bobby Dalbeck chain this year. And finally, in the National League East, uh, who's a bold Boone and Bain? I'm going to go with uh, two different pitchers. Uh, really in on Elysia Hernandez of the Marlins. Uh, Hernandez is one of these guys who is is work, working hard on his changeup, which he really needs to do. You look at his splits and lefties have been able to, to punish him. But if he can get that changeup going, it could be fantastic. And he was one of you – know, last year we look at all the numbers – uh, Hernandez was one of seven pitchers last year to have a strikeout minus walk uh, percentage of higher than 27%, along with Bieber, DeGrom, Bauer, Glasnell, Maeda, and Lament. And then there was Hernandez. That is ex- that is outstanding company to keep uh, for him. And if he can get that change up and reduce the issues where it splits, he could take a nice step forward this year. And then getting back to the workload situation, for me, you know, I love watching Ian Anderson pitch. I'm just concerned about how much he will pitch this year. And, and and Atlanta has a very recent story to look at, too. I mean, Ian Anderson and Mike Soroka were both guys, young arms, that got a lot of work in their early. And then Soroka had the Achilles snap on him last year. Yeah, it wasn't an arm injury, but it was still a body injury. And so I'm concerned about how much they let Ian Anderson pitch coming into the season because he has not. Uh, he has not had a track record of of working. So I show the numbers like he went 39, 83, 119, 134 um, heading into last season. So it's like I'm worried that when I looked at his ADP at the time, you know, he was being drafted over Grenke, Morton, McCullers, Lopez, Musgrove, older guys with track records who don't have the type of injury risk. 
that a, a young arm like Anderson does uh, in the in these critical years. So for me, it's like I, I'm I'm fading Anderson, even though I love watching him pitch and the changeup is amazing. I'm just concerned that we're not going. He's not going to be able to meet expectations. Jason Collette's bold predictions on the Boone side, Lance McCullers of Houston, uh, Anthony DiSclefani of San Francisco, Adam Eaton of the White Sox, Avisail Garcia of Milwaukee, Tanner Scott in Baltimore, Elysia Hernandez in Miami, and on the Bain side, Nate Lowe of Texas, Ramel Tapia of Colorado, Tristan McKenzie of Cleveland, Bobby Dahlbeck of Boston, and Ian Anderson of Atlanta. Jason, this has been fun. Tell our listeners how they can keep up with Jason Collette. So uh, on Twitter at Jason Collette, uh, Collette calls uh, column at Rotowire uh, that hits in the, usually in the middle of every single week. And then on Sundays with the Sleeper in the Bus podcast uh, with Justin Mason uh, that we normally record uh, midday Sunday and drops in Sunday afternoon. So it will uh, no episode this week because Justin's been running Potapalooza, uh, but we will resume our normal recording schedule on March 7th. Okay, Jason, thanks a million. Yeah, this was good. Good timing, too. Enjoyed it. Jason Collette writes the Collette Calls column at Rotowire and podcasts regularly with Fangraphs. Coming up, we'll have our second expert interview with Derek Van Riper from The Athletic. Right now, though, I want to give you one last reminder about First Pitch Florida Online. It's coming up this weekend, Friday, March 5th through Sunday, March 7th. First Pitch Online is a full virtual fantasy baseball experience that you can take in from the comfort of your own home or from your car, if your significant other doesn't like how much time you spend in your own home on our little obsession. There will be draft competitions. You'll have a front row seat to the Labor Expert League drafts, and there'll be lots of engaging interactive conference sessions full of expert insights, like takeaways from 2020, including new parameters, starting pitching, injuries, and rookies. Major League Baseball's responses to the pandemic, changing landscapes in the bullpens, some gaming strategy breakouts, 2021's most challenging projections, in-season roster management, and there's a bunch more. I don't have time to go through it all. You can check it out at BaseballHQ.com slash FirstPitchFlorida with hyphens in between. But you better believe it's all fantasy baseball all weekend long. Just $79, by the way. And all the registrations include a $50 discount towards a future live first pitch conference. So check it out. BaseballHQ.com slash first dash pitch dash Florida. And we'll see you there. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our second feature expert interview. It's Derek Van Riper, who writes and podcasts about fantasy sports for The Athletic. Derek Van Riper, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Well, thanks for joining. I really do appreciate it. I know you're really busy with The Athletic, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But, uh, of course, we always start by asking about your drafts. How many are you in? How many have you done? Where are you in TGFBI? You know, I'm only in the fifth round of my TGFBI draft, which I felt bad about before we spoke before recording. Now I feel pretty good about the progress of my league, given the alternatives. And uh, I think I've completed only two drafts that count this draft season. One was the XFL auction, which was pretty early this winter. And one was an NFBC draft champions league that I did in the middle of January. So I'm only two in, but this week, I have three slow drafts all happening at once. I have labor coming up this weekend. You know, Tout Wars is just around the corner. So I'll get up to double digits before we get to opening day. But they're definitely clustered pretty close together on the schedule here in March. 
Yeah, that's always the way it is. Uh, I'm in TGFBI as well, and I think we just turned the first second round corner. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really dragging along. Uh, we've got people abroad is the problem. And some of them are in time zones way to the East and some of them are in time zones way to the West. And it's a, uh, it's a hassle for sure. And now the chat is starting to, can somebody wake these guys up? Kind of uh, co- commentary. Uh, so, so I guess that's all right. Have you noticed when you're drafting multiple leagues, especially in a compressed time frame, that you start getting a lot more of the same players because you're more confident in them or because you know, you have them from before and it, cuts down on your rooting interest and not have them spread all over the major league baseball that has happened in the past for one reason or another normally when i'm having multiple drafts overlapping it's drafts that are the same format usually it's an nfbc slow draft you know 15 teams they started around the same time everyone's trying to build their team the same way but tgfbi you know that's a typical 15 team mixed league is pretty different than this league that i'm in called glarf which is a regional 15-team league, but it's OBP and quality starts uh, in place of uh, average and wins. So that kind of tweaks that league quite a bit. And then the other slow draft I'm in right now is one through Prospects Live. They're doing a five-year dynasty best ball draft, and there are no positions. It's 10 UTs and nine pitchers in the starting lineup. So that's a totally different exercise. So fortunately, they're very different, and they're good for different parts of my brain. Unfortunately, when I'm trying to track all three of them, I'm in a completely different frame of mind when I look at each board. Yeah, it sounds like you would be. The the uh, quality starts thing, I know a lot of leagues over the years have gone from wins because they find it a little bit capricious and gone to quality starts instead. But is there any concern when you're setting up that rule that in modern baseball, there just aren't going to be that many of them anymore? It's so rare to get see a guy go six full. Especially in in 2021, I think we have a pretty poor understanding of how teams are going to navigate getting their pitchers through this season healthy coming off of the shortened 2020. I don't like quality starts as a stat. I think it's taking a bad stat and wins and choosing a worse one. I would actually replace it with innings pitched because that way, if you have followers or bulk relievers, you have other ways for those pitchers to accrue value instead of having this uh, very unique set of circumstances that are is increasingly difficult for a pitcher to reach in the form of a quality start. So yeah, definitely not a league where I was the commish, but if I'm not the commish, I'm not going to complain too much about the rules. Right. Your partner on your one of your podcasts, Eno Saris, said the other day that he's a guy who just says, show me the rules and I'll play by them. Not worth arguing about. And I think he's exactly right. Uh, and speaking of podcast, Eric, uh, you're the producer of uh, podcasts at uh, The Athletic. How many podcasts does that entail looking after? You know, we have three different fantasy baseball shows, and they all complement each other pretty well. At least that was the way I put the schedule together. Uh, We have a a morning news show called Fantasy Baseball in 15 that runs every weekday, Monday through Friday. We're doing a team preview series on that with our beat writers right now. Once that wraps up, you know, hit all the basic news and notes that people need to sort of start their day. Uh, We also have Rates and Barrels. That's the show I do with Eno on Mondays and Wednesdays, and then Britt Giroli joins us on Fridays. A lot of advanced stats and just big picture baseball things there. Of course, this time of year, we're talking a lot about different draft strategies and always doing player analysis on that show. And then on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays in season, we have the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. So that's running in between rates and barrels on Tuesdays and Thursdays right now. Uh, Tuesdays are a blast. That's the day that I host with Nando DeFino and Ian Kahn. Ian, of course, from Turn, great dynasty player, uh, great tout wars player, already, already won the league in his first season. I think he was a close second in his second season. 
so just a, a ton of fun there. Michael Beller hosts with me on Thursdays. We have a lot of guests from around the industries uh, sprinkling in now. So that certainly adds to the fun as well. So the shows, you know, they balance each other out. There's always something to listen to. Uh, the morning show being news-centric, the afternoon shows being more long-form. I listened to an episode of uh, Rates and Barrels, I think, the other day or with Vlad Sedler. It was really interesting. Uh, you guys were talking a lot about drafting, and of course, Vlad's an excellent guest for that. He's been very successful, especially in those NFBC formats. And you were talking about how to approach closers, and I think that's a really interesting question this year, and I've been talking about it with other guests on this podcast. And the question seems to be, we know that there's going to be a relatively small group of guys that we can say are closers in the traditional sense that they're going to get a lot of saves, but that isn't how it works anymore. There's only a handful of those guys, and then all the rest of them are going to be part-time closers or committee-type members, guys at the heads of committees. But still, Jason Collette told me that the number of guys who got 30 saves has just been declining steadily for the last 10 years, and there's no reason to see it's going to end up. So uh, what do you think are the benefits of drafting, say, a Liam Hendricks early or waiting a little while and grabbing your Alex Colomays and fishing in the shallow end of the pool? The benefits of paying up for a Hendricks or Josh Hader or Roldis Chapman, I kind of see those three being in the top tier, is that you're going to get likely the elite ratios and strikeout rate to go with the added job security. And with Hader, maybe the the door is open slightly because of how they've used him in the past for Devin Williams to finish out some games and and Hader to work in more of a a fireman role or high leverage role in the seventh and eighth inning. But I, I think you're getting everything you want if you're willing to pay the premium price. But for me, Patrick, if I'm in a snake draft and the price is either like a late fourth round pick at the early end for guys like Hayter and Hendricks, or at least a, a solid fifth round pick if we're talking about a role as Chapman, it's really hard to make that commitment because I feel like there are a lot of great players in that range. Plenty of hitters, plenty of starting pitchers there that I like even more than I like those closers. So it becomes a major like opportunity cost problem to solve in a snake draft in particular. But I think the benefit of paying up for the elite closers, or the other benefit aside from those ratios and strikeout rates, is that you're not necessarily going to throw a significant portion of your fab budget at relievers as you go through the season. You can spend a major portion of your fab budget chasing mediocre relievers who may or may not actually get you saves. And you have the rest of the league, or at least half of the rest of the league, usually throwing big bids at those players too. So you're driving the price up by getting stuck in that bidding war and you're not necessarily bringing great pitchers onto your roster. So that, that, that to me, is the benefit for paying up. I just think it's really hard to do it this year because of the, the shape of the board in snake drafts in particular. In an auction, I'm a lot more comfortable paying $18, $19, $20 for those high-end closers to get that extra stability. A guy like Hader might have a pathway to sneaky extra value, though. If he's not closing games, then the reason probably would be that he's been brought in in the eighth to put out a fire and protect uh, maybe a tie game. There might be a way for him to back into four or five wins that way, in addition to maybe four or five fewer saves. And I don't know that it balances out because the saves is such a specialized category, but it's not nothing. Right. And I think the other thing we have to look at more closely with, with teams with modern bullpen management is whether or not they have an A bullpen and a B bullpen. It's something that my co-host, you know, Saris brought up. He said, you know, with the Brewers, they have their good relievers that they use consistently if a game is tied or if they're winning. And then they have their B team relievers who come out if they're down two, down three, and 
that's what makes them so good at protecting leads, right? They save those two or three great relievers they have for games that are really close that they need to lock down. Uh, so it's really interesting because I, I think they end up being in situations with slightly higher win probabilities when they're used in that optimal sort of way. And just kind of browsing through my reliever rankings, there really aren't any relievers inside my top 10 that are pitching for a bad team this year. None of them are, are, are on bad teams, which I think we used to look at closers and say, yeah, it doesn't really matter that much as long as the team's not historically bad because even a bad team's going to find its way to 65 or 70 wins. Bad team's not going to score that many runs. Therefore, they're going to win most of those 65 or 70 games in a pretty close fashion, and that's going to get us to the 30, 35, possibly the 40 saves that we're hoping for. Uh, but I don't think that's necessarily the case now, especially because the disparity between good teams and bad teams is about as wide as it's ever been. Yeah, I did some research for Baseball HQ a couple of years ago about what kind of teams to target, and the answer is if you think a team's going to get more wins than another team, they're probably going to get more saves than the other team. There are exceptions historically to that rule, you know, guys showing up with 45 saves on a 70-win team, but it's pretty rare, and it's likely to remain pretty rare because if you don't win a lot of games, then you're not going to have a lot of save opportunities. I think it's as simple as that. Uh in Rates and Barrels, the middle of last week, I think it was, you guys discussed preferred draft slots, you and Eno. Uh, where did you guys come down on what the best position or best slot is, if there is such a thing? I don't know if we even reached a agreement at the end of that episode, but I do think the the preferred draft position is later than it's been at any point in the last 10 years. Usually, there are maybe two or three players that you see all kind of clustered together at the top. In a few years, I think we've looked at Mike Trout and said he's just head and shoulders the best player. You want the first pick if you can get it. Uh, and normally, if there were a couple other options, if there was a Mookie Betts or a Jose Altuve, depending on the year, you'd say, okay, you know what? I'm okay. I want the third pick as my first choice. Then I'll go three, two, one if I'm setting KDS. And that way I get the earlier pick in round two, and that makes a bigger difference. And Because you're looking at more than the first round when you're setting up where you want to be in the draft order. You're looking at more like four to five rounds, getting a complete picture of what kind of starting pitchers do I get if I'm in this part of the order? What kind of sources of stolen bases are going to be available if I'm here? You want to kind of think through uh, those types of questions before setting it up. I think you can probably set your first preference to be as late as eight this year and still get a player that you believe is actually a top three sort of talent just based on how crazy everything is right now. I think if you want to be a little more conservative, you draw the line closer to six and you end up with just an amazing foundation. I mean, if you look at the TGFBI boards, I think you'll see Mike Trout falling to eight occasionally. That, that's just that's mind blowing to me. I can't believe that even happens. But between Acuna, Tatis, Betts, Soto, Trout, DeGrom, Cole, and then Trey Turner, if you're in a league that has an overall component, I think Turner belongs in that group. That's what makes being as low as eighth in the order appealing. You're guaranteed to get one of those players. You're getting an ace, you're getting a five-category player, or you're getting one of the all-time greats who is so good in power and average and run production that you've got a really strong foundation to build on. Yeah, you know, in TGFBI, when I first set my Kentucky Derby selections, I started 8, 7, 6, 9, 10. That was my first five picks because I wanted to be right in that middle. And then like a day before, I switched to like 3, 2, 1 or 4, 3, 2, 1 or something like that. And I was the first name out of the hat, so I got four. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, 
damn it, anyway, I should have stuck with that original plan because I, I really do prefer being in the middle. And uh, I think every slot has its advantages and disadvantages. And I also believe that after you get past about maybe four or five rounds, it doesn't matter anymore because at that point, the variation in the other guys picking and all of that sort of probabilities go out the window because there's a million, you know, you start off with maybe six choices. And by the time you're six rounds in, based on what everybody else has done, you're going to have 6,000 choices. So it really, at that point, it, it's, it doesn't matter. And then I wonder, is there a tactical advantage in being able to be in the middle of a run versus being at somewhere near the end and starting a run? So I've thought a lot about that. And I think that's the main reason a lot of people prefer to be in the middle third of the draft order or the absolute middle of the order if we're talking about a 15-team league. But we're talking about runs where there may only be three to five players available that are similar. We're talking about a tier of closers or we're talking about some some speedsters in the early round who also do some other things, of course, because they're early round picks. That group runs out quickly enough where you could be in the middle if you make that pick in the third round and you got to wait 14 picks before you pick again. That run can happen between teams one and seven either going away from you or as it comes back. So I think you could still get beat by a run, even when you're in the middle. I think that's a little bit of a, a fallacy that some people believe that they won't get caught. I don't know. I, I think the other thing that's a little bit different for me compared to other people, I like picking on a wheel. I don't care if it's the end of the draft order. I, I don't mind that. I think it's more like building a team in an auction. And it's something that uh, Ariel Cohen uh, had, an, had an interesting conversation with me behind the scenes on Twitter after I said this. I said, yeah, I think you have an advantage picking players two at a time. He said, well, mathematically, you don't. And I trust Ariel Cohen. He's very smart. He does the math. He does the legwork. I, I said, maybe value you know, says that you have that. But I think there's something about choosing two players together and being able to better plot the course of your roster compared to your opponents that actually makes being at the end of the draft order or at the very beginning, uh, a distinct advantage in a snake draft format. So uh, it's under dispute, but uh, at least based on the way I like to build teams and, and maybe because I've had a lot more success in auctions than snake drafts over the years, maybe that's more of a personal preference than anything else. Yeah, there is that element of control. You're right. Uh, it does give you the maybe the illusion of control when you're coming up at at the uh, at the actual turn right on the wheel. I've been fourteen, thirteen around there. Those are the ones I really don't like because it seems like if you're at maybe twelve or thirteen, you think you can start or end a run, but you can't. And in the meantime, as you said, five starters can go, but before between your two picks as they zing around the wheel and all of a sudden there go all the closers or all the last few uh, power hitters or whatever it is you think that's uh, in short supply. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Derek Van Riper from The Athletic. And Derek, at The Athletic, part of your preseason site content is your own listings of your top players. You came up with 300 top hitters, 200 top pitchers, 160 starters, 40 relievers. I'd like to start with your starters, and before we get to your list in particular, the big strategic theme this year in uh, drafts has been pushing starting pitchers up the lineup. In that context, how are you managing your starters? I'm trying not to follow suit. Uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily a good idea to take 50, 60 inning samples from 2020 and, and try and decide if, if that's... like actually sustainable. I, we can't ignore 2020 completely, but Zach Plesak, Kenta Maeda, guys that 
you were a lot cheaper last year. Even Corbin Burns, who I do like quite a bit. When you take that group of players and you jam them up into the top 60 overall based on 8 to 10 starts, I think you're opening up the possibility of making some pretty big mistakes. I mean, anyone can be good or bad over an 8 to 10 start stretch. We've seen this. We've seen pitchers in mid-May who are supposed to be very good carrying ERAs over 5 and bloated whips. It's happened before. And we've seen mediocre pitchers look like Cy Young candidates over stretches that size. Now, I'm not saying that you know Maeda and Burns and uh, and Zach Plesak are all you know, flukes or anything like that, but I think sometimes the market has a tendency to overcorrect, especially just with recency bias in general, and I think we're adding recency bias that has more noise in it because of the shortened 2020 season. So while everyone else is sort of jamming pitchers further up the board, I'm looking at, you know, the quality of those pitchers and considering taking pitching early, but I'm not necessarily saying you have to have pocket aces to win this year. I don't think you necessarily have to have two pitchers in the first four rounds to win this year. I think there are a ton of ways to win in fantasy baseball. And if the masses are on one strategy, there's usually some value in zigging when everyone else zags. Okay. If you're going to zag, what are you going to do? Just not take starting pitching early at all. So for me, I think that would mean one starting pitcher in the first four to five rounds instead of that seemingly mandatory two. Like I'm looking at my TGFBI board right now. There's actually one team on the wheel that has taken four starting pitchers in the first four rounds. So that's a huge overall sort of play. I'm curious to see how the bats come together for that. But we have, let's see, one, two, three, four. It looks like five teams already have two pitchers in the first four rounds. And I'm going to guess that another two or three are going to get their second pitcher before the end of round five. I probably won't be quite that early. I'm going to live in that round seven to round 12 range and just load up on starting pitching there. Maybe this will be the type of situation where I will get one of the earlier relievers. You know, it's not going to be one of the elite ones. But for me, the sweet spot with relievers are guys like Rysel Iglesias and Ryan Presley. So I might emphasize getting two closers a little earlier in a league where I don't necessarily have as much starting pitching early on, and then go through those middle rounds and try and just load up on starters that I feel are undervalued coming off of the shortened season. Because just as you have a few guys who are up a little higher than we expected in price, we have some guys that dropped based on a shortened season that, frankly, if you look at the bigger picture, if you pull back and look at 2019 and 2020 together, and you look at underlying metrics like velocity and and pitch mix, those pitchers maybe shouldn't have fallen as much as the market has pushed them down coming off of last season. The other part of it, uh, just from a game theory point of view, is if lots of teams have lots of starting pitching early, then they're going to be in trouble chasing the hitters. And that also means that what the the very best hitters are going to accrue to guys who didn't chase pitching early. And uh, from my point of view, the reason I don't like this is I just don't trust pitching. I never have, and I know it's better now, and the injury control is better, and blah, blah, blah. But the fact is, if I'm faced with a choice between a $35 pitcher and a $35 hitter, I'm taking the hitter 10 times out of 10, because I just believe that a hitter has less pathways to disaster, especially as regards injury. Yeah, I mean, I, I generally agree with that. I think I would want to know the shape of the pool at the time. Um, if they're, if the let's say we're looking at the $35 hitter versus the $35 pitcher, and then there's a $5 drop-off before the next pitcher. But for the hitter, there are $34, $33, $32 hitters sprinkled in behind that hitter. In that case, maybe I would take that ace 
wait till my next pick to start getting hitters and then come back to pitching a little bit later on, right? Like that's a factor. But yeah, in a vacuum, as you described, like I'm I'm with you. I still prefer a hitter to a pitcher, all other factors being equal. Well, I'm coming up to my third round pick in <laughs> TGFBI. We're, we must be one of the slowest leagues going. And uh, I, I got Betts and Scherzer with my first two, and I think I'm going to have a choice when my next pick comes up between, you know, Flaherty or maybe uh, Kershaw, or I can get, you know, a Corey Seager or a Anthony Rendon or somebody like that. And I'm, I was leaning towards the pitcher, but in the back of my mind, I think I, I wouldn't mind getting that power average combination from Seager or from Rendon. And I don't know what to do, but I think I'm going to lean towards the hitter. And this yeah. will come out before anybody can hear it. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I do see a bit of a, a tear break outside of the top 11 or 12 starting pitchers. I, maybe it's, maybe it's a little bigger than that, but there's some funny little pockets in starting pitching that I'm not necessarily interested in, in that particular part of the list. I think where you're sitting, if you were able to get Betts and Scherzer, if Flaherty's still there, I would actually probably get my second starter. But again, I don't think that's a strategy that you have to execute. I think it depends on what the room is doing and where you're positioned in the draft order. And I think your position to be a little more aggressive with pitching compared to where, I mean, I'm, I'm picking 11th in this thing. And I went Jose Ramirez, you Darvish, Alex Bregman, Starling Marte. And I didn't feel when I took Bregman, or when I took Marte, if there was a, a logical starting pitcher that was going to return comparable value to the hitters I was considering in that spot. But I do think there's going to be a little bit of a clip with pitching that you haven't quite reached yet, being in the earlier part of the draft order in the third round. All right, let's move on to your top starting pitchers list. Uh, before we get into particular players, what was the method that you used? So I look at things uh, kind of similar to a Marcel projection. I'm looking at a three-year window uh, this year, I tried to take a little less of the most recent season, given the unique nature of the 2020 season. So I have probably more of like a like a 40-40-20 sort of split going from 2020 to 2019 back to 2018. So 2018 matters about half as much as the last two seasons matter to me. Uh, I Frankenstein the 2019-2020 stats together on a Fangraphs leaderboard, jammed that into my spreadsheet. Uh, put in a bunch of 2020 metrics as well. You know, I'm looking at called strikes and whiffs. I'm looking at command plus scores and trying to get a good snapshot of where the skills, the very granular skills were for pitchers last year, and then where the production as a whole has been over that longer multi-year window. And I got to say, it's, um, it's one of those exercises, Patrick. Most years, I'm pretty confident in what I've done with rankings, but every time I open up my spreadsheets, I see something that doesn't quite look right that I have to tweak. And I feel like that's just going to be the nature of this draft season. Like you can talk yourself into a million adjustments between now and opening day. And, and part of this is uh, probably just going to have to be accepting what we're dealing with from last season for what it is. Not many surprises at the top of your table, DeGrom, Cole, Bieber, just what we'd expect. But let's look at where you really vary. And I'll use the baseball HQ projections to as a kind of a, a measuring stick, there are some big variations. I'd like to start with pitchers on whom you are much higher than Baseball HQ. Uh, starting with Aaron Sanchez, you have him on your top 200. I think Baseball HQ has him in the 600s. What do you like about Aaron Sanchez in 2021? So Aaron Sanchez is a little bit unique for me in that he landed in a situation in San Francisco where if he fails as a starter, if he just 
isn't good in that role or if he doesn't even earn a rotation spot in spring training, I think they're going to give him the Drew Pomerantz treatment where they say, hey, you, know, you have an upper 90s fastball and you've got two secondary pitches that are at least decent. Let's put you in the pen. Let's make you our closer because that's a wide open closer situation. I, I, it's one of the places I really haven't thrown a lot of darts on the short relievers to this point. So I just feel like with Sanchez, he's more of an end game mixed league sort of option where if it clicks, if the velo's back, I saw a report that he was throwing 98 just before he signed with the Giants. Uh, if he's actually throwing 98 again and he has the curveball working the way he did in that very brief time with Houston before he got hurt, I could actually see Aaron Sanchez sticking as a viable back-end starter. But I just think the multiple paths to useful fantasy value is what gets him a spot on the bottom portion of my list. You have Mackenzie Gore at 106, again, hundreds of slots higher than Baseball HQ. What's the story with your appreciation of Mackenzie Gore? So the good news for Mackenzie Gore fans out there, and I guess I'm, I'm one of them based on, on the ranking, is that some of the mechanical issues he was having at the alternate site last season have been cleaned up based on all the reports we've seen so far this spring. Uh, we're talking about a four-pitch lefty. Every offering is at least an average pitch. Command is there. Uh, you don't see a lot of future value 70 starting pitchers. You just don't see that grade thrown out there very often. So I, I think it's the belief that he can be a frontline type starter pretty soon after arrival. I, I think given that we've only seen Gore throw 21 and two-thirds innings at the double-A level, he probably is going back down. Uh, he's also a Scott Boris client. So while I have some optimism that the Padres going all in are going to give him an early promotion, I don't think he's necessarily an opening day option. Uh, so thinking about all of this, it's more of, Hey, Mackenzie Gore's in this range where I can draft him. I can use one of my bench spots to stash a player like this. And the payoff could be big, especially in a year. If we're talking about everybody pushing, starting, pitching up, maybe overpaying for guys who shouldn't be early rounders and shouldn't be $18, $20, $25 players, Mackenzie Gore might be the kind of guy we're paying $18 to $20 for in an auction this time next year. So for me, if I can draft him late, throw a couple bucks at him in an auction, hold him on my bench for a few weeks, and then possibly reap the benefits of that profit, that to me is the ultimate strategy play. Like If you're zigging where everyone else is zagging with pitching, you want a guy like Gore who can come up and really exceed expectations. And the beauty of taking guys like Aaron Sanchez and Mackenzie Gore is if they don't pan out, your cost was virtually nil, so you just go into the free agent pool and find something better for a dollar or for zero dollars if your league plays that way. It's a fungible asset when you get down to that bottom area of any draft, and it's not like it's costing you a fortune, as I said. Uh, you like two veteran mats, uh, Matt Shoemaker, Matt Boyd. You're about 80 slots or so higher on them than Baseball HQ. Why are you saying welcome, Matt? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I always wonder uh, how and why certain players end up kind of having like an analyst attached to them. And, and oftentimes it is just ranking them higher than the field, ranking them higher than ADP, ranking them higher than a set of projections. Uh, Matt Shoemaker is a better pitcher than people probably give him credit for, but he's hurt all the time. So, I mean, we're talking, you know, Rich Hill sort of health grade concerns, health grade F, I'm sure, in the forecaster for Matt Shoemaker, and, and deservedly so. Uh, but the interest in Shoemaker for me comes from the Twins. They're an organization that I really trust to manage pitching correctly. Ever since they brought in Wes Johnson as their pitching coach, they've had a lot of success. I was a little surprised I didn't bring back Jake Odorizzi. Uh, but part of that, I think, is that they believe in some of the depth that they have there and their ability to find scrap heap pitchers and, and make them 
passable options. And part of it too is the streaming spots in the AL Central. I mean, I think you still have at least two teams in there in the Royals and Tigers that you're really not fearing at all. So you've got a, a pretty favorable schedule there. Win probabilities are pretty high for Minnesota pitchers as well. Uh, with Boyd, I feel like it's a little more of a leap of faith. I, I think with Boyd, I was one of the few people that didn't like him going into last season. And now a lot of people that loved him are out on him, but he was hurt. He talked about having an injury that he's pitching through at the end of last season. I think you're at the very least getting strikeouts, even if you run the risk of bloating the ratios a bit with Matthew Boyd. Uh, but this is probably not unlike a typical year uh, Robbie Ray sort of play where you throw a, a later round dart hoping to make up ground in that strikeouts category. I think he fits really well on a team. Like if you wait on starting pitching early and maybe Kyle Hendricks is your SP2, right? You're trying to lock in some ratios and uh, you're a little lighter on Ks than you'd like to be. Matthew Boyd's the kind of pitcher that you can get at a very affordable price who at least helps you make up ground in that one category. And I think there's a decent chance that maybe he's a low to mid force ERA guy with more of a league average sort of whip behind those Ks. Baseball HQ has Marcus Stroman barely inside the top 100. You have him inside your top 50. Uh, what is Marcus Stroman's appeal? And by the way, I agree with you. Yeah, Stroman for me, I, I mean, it's hard to value players who were out, opting out of last season, right? Like that's actually just really hard to know. Like, how effective are they going to be as the season goes on? For me, it's just looking at, at Stroman and seeing a guy that we probably undervalued in the fantasy community overall throughout his time in the big leagues. You know, we haven't seen him take a full season in the National League yet. Uh, a lot of time in the AL East, and he survived. Uh, so I look at Stroman. I see a guy that probably comes in with a mid-threes ERA, a good whip, decent strikeout rate as well. And I think you can tell if you if you follow him on Twitter, if you, if you kind of read stories about him, he, he seems like a guy that's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder right now, uh, working on a short-term deal, hoping to get that long-term payday next offseason. So ticks a lot of boxes for me generally a pretty durable guy and uh, better ratios than people realize i think especially when you put him in the context of where he spent most of his career and uh, he spent most of his career up here in uh, toronto not far from here so i saw a lot of marcus stroman over the last few years and one thing i like about him is and i know this is one of those intangibles that a lot of people say you have to discount but he's very competitive and he's a bulldog competitor when he's out on the mound and he hates losing and you can tell and it, he seems like the kind of guy that would you know run up and punch a guy if he thought he could get away with it and make an out out of it so that's something i also like about marcus stroman i wonder do you when you're tweaking your rankings, do you look at those personality characteristics and and apply them and say, yeah, he's not quite as skilled as Pitcher X, but you know what? Pitcher X seems to have a bit of the dog in him, and this guy's got the bit of the bulldog in him. A little bit, yeah. And I think I've become more receptive to that type of analysis, you know, working with Ian, uh, Ian Kahn. Like, he's very into... Uh, the psychology of, of how a player reacts on the field, how they cope with different situations. Uh, and there's one he, situation he brought up to me. It's not a pitching situation, but I never even thought to watch this. He said, watch what happens after a guy hits a home run when he gets back into his dugout. If his teammates mostly ignore him, and it's not in that rookie hit a home run, you know, first home run, silent treatment sort of way, but if the teammates are not really that excited for a guy that hit a home run, they probably don't like that guy, right? And th that might actually mean something. Like, it, I never would have even thought to watch that. And I, I think it was Clint Frazier who, uh, who he was referring to at the time. But anyway, it, there are different things you can see just from literally watching games and, and watching how players react to different situations that I do think are helpful. I see it as something that's a little more 
beneficial on the margins rather than something I would you know make kind of foundational in my analysis. Yeah, it's a tweak type of thing. It's a tiebreaker type of thing. Uh, what did Yogi Berra say? You can observe a lot just by watching. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's really true, and I think that there there is something to be said about that kind of stuff. I'm wondering about since you mentioned it again, the uh, the short season and how it's going to affect um, the pitcher's ability to stay in games, to pitch a lot of innings, and so forth. Is it possible that we're overestimating the importance of not having pitched the year before? These guys are professional pitchers. A lot of the a lot of them veterans have pitched for many years in Major League Baseball. It feels to me like it should be kind of like riding a bike. I mean, I know it's not exactly the same, but the mechanics are pretty similar. You can work on that kind of stuff during the offseason, and many of them now do. I just wonder if we're saying, you know, this pitcher only pitched 38 innings or 40 innings in 2020. Therefore, it's going to take him half a season to get going. Is that right? Because a lot of pitchers in regular ordinary seasons with full spring trainings, they come out firing in there and they don't look back. Right. I think a lot of pitchers, as we see teams kind of get through the spring rotation the first time, pitchers seem to be themselves this spring. I haven't seen or heard a lot of reports about guys being significantly down in velocity or anything like that. I think the the bigger question is, you know, what happens when you get to August and September? But I think we could be overestimating this. I mean, we're talking about a sport where guys pitch from February, the early days of spring training until September most years, take a little time off. You know, hit the weights, do some throwing, do work on the side, and then ramp up and do it again. How much does that actual workload over the course of a full season impact the next year's workload? And maybe rest is a good thing. Maybe guys that opted out actually have a really fresh arm for the first time in, in years, in the case of Stroman or in the case of, of David Price. I mean, I think you can at least argue different points of view on this. And I think that's a big part of why I'm not just following suit with everybody else and saying, okay, yeah, let's all just draft pitching earlier and pay more for pitching this year. I, I, I just think there are ways that the group could be wrong about how 2020 will impact 2021. Yeah, I think that's especially true when we discount everybody's innings, except, you know, I, I hear the argument that says, well, DeGrom, Cole, Bieber, maybe a Bauer for sure. They're they're going to be over 165, 170 innings. Everybody else is going to be below because they're all suffering from this immense hangover from not having pitched sufficient innings in a prior year. And I'm I'm just not sure that's how it works. My wife follows tennis pretty closely, so we watch a lot of tennis. I mean, that's not unlike a pitching motion, especially the serve. And these guys play every week for the entire year, you know, and then they come back after a month off and they pick it up and they look exactly as good as they did before. And they just carry on at the pretty much the same level. I, I, I think we're not giving them as much credit as we maybe should as athletes, not just as pitchers, full quote. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. I mean, if baseball season was 11 months out of the year with that one month of downtime, more like tennis season than having a two and a half month long season would be much more problematic than than it actually is. Right. And the but the problem wouldn't be I don't think the problem would be stamina. I think the problem would be getting your mechanics back in order because you've had such a long time not playing at a high level and I can see that argument. Uh, on the flip side of guys that uh, Baseball HQ likes way less than you, there are a few that Baseball HQ liked way more. Starting with Chris Sale, uh, Baseball HQ actually put him in around number 30 on their starting pitchers list. For you he's below 100. 
allowing for the delayed start, he won't be ready to start the season. Do you have other concerns besides the obvious return from Tommy John? No, that's really it. I mean, I think he can come back and be close to the guy that he was pre-surgery. And, you know, once we get to 2022, Chris Sale could be a top five starting pitcher again. That wouldn't really surprise me at all if it played out like that. But I think in, in leagues that don't have IL spots, he's really difficult to draft anything more than, you know, a late sort of dark price. Uh, so for me, Noah Syndergaard falls into the same boat. I, I think uh, Luis Severino is in the same situation as well. I, I'm just not necessarily drafting those guys in redraft leagues based on how much time they're already expected to miss here in 2021. Three other starting pitchers had eh, 40 or so slot gaps between you and Baseball HQ. Taiwan Walker, John Means, and Tony Gonsolin are all much higher on HQ's list than they are on yours. What's your idea on these three guys back of the fantasy roster types for me walker is a lot like matt shoemaker where i'm just worried about health i think the skills are pretty good i think the situation with the mets is pretty solid for him as well and he's fine as sort of a a back-end fantasy option means i think Eno likes him a lot more than i do i am very skeptical in part because of the park i think the team context is still very bad in baltimore it's an offense that's going to struggle to score runs to provide run support. It's a bullpen that's likely going to struggle to protect leads, too. So I just see, I'm seeing all the downside and, and actually no upside in John Means, which is probably a little bit of bias on my part. Gonsolin, you know, I, I think if we knew he had a spot in the rotation, he'd be much higher on my list. He may have to wait a long time to get those chances. I mean, he could be maybe their new version of Ross Stripling. Or they could use him as more of a short reliever. I mean, they have a lot of flexibility because of the depth that they've amassed. So it's just the uncertainty about the number of innings that we're actually going to get from Gonsolin that's really buried him in my rankings. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Derek Van Riper from The Athletic. And uh, Derek, you also had a list of relief pitchers. We did talk about saves and that kind of stuff earlier. So I'm just curious if you had any minnows in the pool that could grow up to be sharks. Uh, Anybody you're really looking at thinking this guy could get the promotion other than Aaron Sanchez, obviously. Uh, Jonathan Hernandez in Texas. I mean, I think Jose Leclerc had a shoulder injury last year. I think Hernandez is a converted starter that actually has a pretty deep arsenal for a reliever. The ADP was around pick 500 for a while. I'm sure he's crept up a little bit since then. Uh, But he looks like a guy that could really take that job and run with it in Texas. And they're not a good team, but they're not a horrible team either. So I think you're looking at maybe a ceiling of like 25 saves if he gets the job early enough. But at the price, I'd be really happy with that. Uh, And I would say Emmanuel Class A, a former Ranger who was flipped to Cleveland in the Corey Kluber deal. I think he could end up being the guy in Cleveland ahead of James Karinchak. I, mean, I think the, the price on Karinchak is kind of ridiculous when you consider that he's got a major walk issue. Like as filthy as he is, James Karinchak might walk 15% of the batters that he faces. So as excited as I am about the possibility of Karinchak striking 100 guys out this season, it might be in the 7th and 8th inning while Class A, who's throwing 100 with movement, ends up taking over the closer role. So that's just one of those teams where I look at it and say, you know, we don't really have a strong indication that Karinchak is the guy. And even if he gets the job, that he's totally locked in if he goes through a stretch where he can't find the plate. Most of the relievers you ranked uh, were within a slot or two of Baseball HQ's rankings, but there were two extremes where you liked the guy quite a bit more than Baseball HQ. Josh Stomont in Kansas City, Ryan Presley. Uh, why them? 
Uh, Presley, I think, is a mix of job security and skills. He's got pretty clear second-tier skills for me. That's like a low 30% K rate, a good walk rate, enough swinging strikes to back up the strikeouts. Uh, you know, I, I think he, he to me, is an easy top 10 closer. Uh, I'm a little surprised that HQ's not higher on him. Uh, Josh Stamont, though, is, is a little bit different because he's, he's, to me, like a reason not to draft James Karinchak. If you like someone that has great stuff that can strike a lot of guys out, but also doesn't necessarily have good control. I'd much rather take that chance where Stamont goes in, you know, the pick 400 to 500 range of some drafts, than use a, an eighth or a ninth round pick to go get James Karinchak. So if I'm taking a shot on a high risk, high reward reliever who might get me some saves, I'm doing that late instead of early. And, and Stamont at least offers that opportunity. Finally, Derek, let's move on to your top 300 hitters. And again, before we start, I'd like to ask you a theoretical question more about stolen bases. My inclination in drafts is to try to get stolen bases early, but I know there's a school of thought that says you can get a manageable, workable supply of stolen bases later in drafts. So where are you planning to target your stolen bases in 2021 drafting? I see enough steals in the first 10 rounds where I'm comfortable in the first four or five rounds taking a hitter or two that doesn't run at all. I mean, I took Alex Bregman in the third round of TGFBI. I don't expect him to steal more than a handful of bases. Anything he gives me in that category is a bonus. But I think part of my my faith in the, let's say, early mid-round sources of speed is that some of them are guys like Victor Robles and Byron Buxton, guys who are premium defenders at a position where teams really care about defense, both being center fielders, I think with Buxton, we're a little bit confused by the power he showed last season, and I'm not expecting that to repeat in 2021. With Robles, he, he showed up for camp last summer, and he was overweight, tried to put on some weight to add power, and it just didn't work for him at all. Uh, by most accounts, he seems to be healthier this spring. We're talking about a guy that at 22 years old had a 17 homer, 28 stolen base season in 2019, working out of the bottom of the order. For the Nats. So he doesn't have to be high in that batting order to be a good fantasy value. Oftentimes you can get him around that pick 125 to 150 range. So I think it's my belief in players like Buxton and Robles being undervalued that makes me comfortable taking some mashers who don't run early on and getting my steals a little bit later than the field might be getting theirs. Some more variants of opinion. You're about 125 slots more favorable towards Yasmani Grandal than Baseball HQ is, and I think he just took an injury. But what was your reason for liking Grandal, and are, is it still valid? Yeah, James McCann being gone, I think maxes out the playing time for Grandal. They have Andrew Vaughn kind of lined up to work in tandem with Jose Abreu in the first base and DH roles. But if Vaughn falters at all, I think Grandal ends up getting some opportunities to DH uh, in 2021, we'll see what happens with that knee injury. It sounds like it's nothing too serious. He's been hitting and throwing coming out of the weekend. So hopefully he's playing in spring games soon. He's a batting average liability, but he's got, I think, legitimate good OBP skills, especially for a catcher that puts him higher up in the lineup. So we're talking about a guy that has legit power. He's in a good lineup. He gets on base. So your counting stats aren't that bad. And I actually really like getting a top five catcher this year with the exception of Real Mudo and Snake Drafts. I think he goes too early. But I want one of my two catcher spots to be locked in with someone who plays a ton and can actually be an asset across the board. Your biggest disagreement with Baseball HQ is Jared Kelenic in Seattle. This seems to be a playing time disagreement more than anything. How confident are you that Kelenic gets close to a full season, if not a full season, playing for the Mariners? 
I think he's probably my hitter equivalent to Mackenzie Gore, where I think it might just be a few weeks into the season once we get to maybe late April. I think Kelnick's up and, and doing damage in this Mariners lineup. And uh, I think he's out to prove to the Mariners that he's going to earn every dollar of a massive free agent contract several years from now. He's betting on himself, as we we learned from the uh, the famed Rotary Club meeting a few weekends ago. But uh, I, I'm in on Kelnick. I mean, I think the only thing he really doesn't do is, is steal a lot of bases. And even in that category, he's young enough where he's going to give you uh, what I would call long tail speed. I think the hit tool's good. The power's going to be there. And he's going to get a spot, I think, right in the heart of that Seattle order pretty soon after he's called up. Yeah, that uh, the Rotary Club, I think, may even help him because it'll be sort of embarrassing if they send him down for obvious service time manipulation that the Seattle media will go, yeah, we heard about this. Uh, please don't give us the bourgeois about, you know, he needs... 10 days of seasoning <laughs> as opposed to, you know, just starting the season. So I, I think, if anything, I think Kellenic might get a boost from that. Uh, in general, whether for ranking purposes at the site, Derek, or for your own draft planning, what goes into evaluating a prospect like a Kellenic or a Gore when you're making your decisions about these kinds of lists, but also whether you're going to target guys? It actually comes down to where the team is at in their rebuilding cycle or competitive cycle. And I think in the case of, of these two teams they're both in different spots but I think for a pitcher like Gore going to a contender that has a couple of, of injury prone starters in the rotation and, and and clearly the Padres are just all in right now they've, they've done it with Paddock they've done it with Tatis they've been pretty aggressive with promoting those guys that gives me a lot of confidence in, in Gore being a big part of their plan sooner rather than later in the case of Kelnick I mean we already saw him reach double a as a 19-year-old in 2019, they have a spot to give him as soon as he's ready. And I, I just think you're looking for position players who aren't going to have to share a role when they come up. And I think that it describes the situation that Kalanick is going to be promoted into perfectly. You're pessimistic about Andrelton Simmons. Where does he fall short for you? Really, for me, it, it's he's just kind of uh, an oatmeal player, as we call them. Uh, just... He's going to have an everyday job because of his glove. He's going to put up decent counting stats. He's fine, especially in like an AL-only league. He might be a little bit undervalued. Uh, but I think I've always been a little skeptical of the power with Anderson Simmons. He had that 17 home run season way back in 2013. Uh, kind of flashed up into the, the low double digits a couple times with the Angels. But I just don't see a whole lot there. And I wonder if, now that he's on the wrong side of 30, if those those bags we used to get, if those are going to disappear as well. It seems like Jonathan Scope is pushed down the rankings every year unjustifiably, and he almost always turns a profit for those who have him. You have him about 75 slots later than HQ does, despite 25-plus home runs in the last four full years. And a two sixty-five batting average, I, I remember hearing, oh, Scope will kill your batting average, but two sixty-five will get the job done. Why doesn't anyone, including you, ever like Jonathan Scope? I think we have a blind spot for low OBP players that end up with lots of playing time, and that's what Jonathan Scope's been pretty much for his whole career. He's a 259 career hitter with a 297 OBP, but he's slugged 450, and he usually ends up in the middle third of the lineup when he's playing. I think there's plenty of playing time likely coming, so he's, he's one of those guys that's buried right now in my ranks but probably needs to get a slight upgrade. I would say HQ probably has him closer to where he should be going. And I've seen more than a few experts touting Alex Verdugo in Boston. A baseball HQ has him in the 50s. You're not on board. You have him in the low 100s. Oh, why don't you like Alex Verdugo as much as many others? 
I think I'm just a little more skeptical of the power. Uh, I, I see a good hit tool. I see a decent eye at the plate. I think he could be a doubles machine staying in Boston. And I, I don't know if I believe that we're going to get a lot of speed in the long term. I think you know, 10 to 12 bags is probably where he tops out there. So I think he's more of an average and runs sort of play than a power and speed play. So that's what drops him for me. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Derek Van Riper from The Athletic. And Derek, I like to wrap up these talks with some boons and banes. These are players you think will help their fantasy teams or hurt them. Let's start with your boons. These are guys you think will provide good value for their fantasy managers this season. In the American League, who's a hitting boon? It's an early rounder, but I, I don't understand why Glaber Torres has fallen as much as he has. He's an obvious target for me where he's going. Uh, I think the run production will be there. The power is legit. I, I just I don't see any red flags with him at all. I think a lot of times you can get him outside the top 60 overall, and I think he could finish right back in as a top 30 type player. So he's one of those early rounders that I've been going after pretty consistently in my draft so far. Me too. Uh, National League hitting Boone? Nick Senzel, Um, I think health has been a problem for him, Uh, more of a a mid-round sort of guy, but extremely athletic. He's made that adjustment to center field really effectively. I think we're, I'm actually pretty optimistic about the Reds' offense meeting the expectations we had for it going into 2020. I think they're just going to meet them here in 2021, and Senzel is going to be a big part of that. Coming off just a miserable shortened season, only played 23 games, but there's power, there's speed. I think there's actually a little bit of room for the batting average to tick up to. We saw him hit 256 as a rookie in 2019. I would actually take the over on that here in 2021. Over to the mound in the American League, who's a pitching boon? I'm a sucker, another early round sort of guy, but Jose Barrios, I, I think, is one of those targets for me. If I'm looking for my second starting pitcher in that pick 75 to 90 range, Barrios is that guy because I'm valuing innings. I think everyone is, but I think Barrios will at the very least get me that. I trust Minnesota, like I mentioned before. The K-rate is at least solid, even if it's not elite. And I think there's a possibility we still haven't seen the best ratios of Jose Barrios' career just yet. And in the National League, who could be a boon pitcher? Another red, Tyler Molly. Uh, I love Tyler Molly. Deep arsenal, changed some things up last year. Velo solid, uh, much like Minnesota. I mean, you get a relationship with driveline in Cincinnati, and they're really betting on their pitching development, I think, and, and letting Trevor Bauer go as a free agent this offseason. Uh, but Barrios strikes me, or not Barrios, Molly strikes me as a guy that's going probably three to four rounds later than he should. We'll see if the ADP holds as we get closer to draft season. Derek Van Riper's Boons, Glaber Torres of the Yankees, Nick Senzel of Cincinnati, Jose Barrios of Minnesota, Tyler Molly of Cincinnati. Over we'll go to the Baines. These are guys you think are probably going to hurt their rosters uh, starting again in the American League. Who's a hitting Bane? Yeah, this one's a little trickier for me. I am I'm unable to bring myself to draft Adalberto Mondesi at price. I understand the game theory behind it, especially in NFBC leagues where you know possibly getting 50 steals in the second round is a game changer. But we're talking about a guy who's projected to hit in the 230s by a lot of projection systems with a sub 300 OBP, likely buried in the bottom of that Kansas City lineup again. So your run production is going to lag even if you get some power and a lot of speed from Mondesi. So I think at price, Mondesi's a bane for me this year. I've talked about Adalberto Mondesi with some other uh, guests here on Baseball HQ Radio, and I, their worry, in addition to all of what you said, is he could be literally out of the league. He could he could uh, 
non-OBP his way entirely out of the league because they have some choices in Kansas City. He certainly doesn't seem to be a second or third rounder, way too much risk. Uh, in the National League, who's a hitting bane? Yeah, National League side, Trent Grisham, as much as I hate to say it, is a fun player. I think he's got a little too much helium coming off the shortened season. There's a batting average liability there. Uh, you wonder where he's going to hit against lefties, if he's even starting against lefties. So I think you might be looking at more of a big side platoon guy with power and speed than someone who's actually going to play every single day and, and max out volume-wise. And inside the top 75, I think that's just a little bit too too pricey for a player that I actually like. I just think he's he's gone up too much. Is it ever a benefit, Derek, for a guy with bad platoon splits to simply be a platoon player because he doesn't get all those useless plate appearances against guys he just can't hit? I think that's definitely possible. I mean, I think we've seen that with with Jock Peterson over the years with the Dodgers. I think the problem is when those players get inside the top 100 overall and you start comparing them to guys who are not platooned, they just fall short in playing time and the counting stats aren't quite good enough to justify the price. Exactly. So uh, over to the mound again, American League pitching Bane. Zach Plesak. Uh, I'm probably going to regret this because Cleveland's track record developing pitching is outstanding. I know the arsenal's deep, but he did lose some velocity on his fastball last year. Uh, AL Central pitchers that thrived are generally a group that I'm just a little bit skeptical of because of the weird schedule from last year. I don't think Plesak's going to be a bad pitcher by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm having a very hard time buying into a repeat or anything close to a repeat of the skills that we saw from him a year ago. And in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher? I've been really careful with uh, with you, Darvish, until drafting him in TGFBI. And I think the reason I'm a little skeptical of Darvish is that the ratios are generally a little more volatile than I would like for a guy that is ranked as high as I have him ranked and as high as he goes in ADP. So He's one of those guys that I'm I'm regretting drafting him already, and it's only been a day since I got my first share of Yu Darvish here in 2021. Derek Van Riper's Baines, Adalberto Mondesi of Kansas City, Trent Grisham of San Diego, Zach Plesak of Cleveland, and Yu Darvish of San Diego, despite having drafted him just the other day in the second round. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, it's been a treat to remind our listeners where they can keep up with Derek Van Riper. I'm on Twitter, at Derek Van Riper. All my work is over at The Athletic, so uh, be sure to check it out. We've got rankings, articles, our draft kit, everything you could possibly want, and uh, lots of podcasts, Rates and Barrels, The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast, and, and Fantasy Baseball on 15, anywhere you enjoy your podcasts. All right, Derek, thank you very much for taking the time. I do appreciate it, and I hope we get to talk to you during the season. Yeah, thanks a lot, Patrick. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to uh, competing with you in Tout Wars. Derek Van Riper writes and podcasts about fantasy sports for The Athletic. <laughs> And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 2nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 9 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Two Tout Tuesday edition, Jason Collette from Rotowire and Fangraphs Podcasts, and Derek Van Riper, who writes and podcasts about fantasy sports for The Athletic. Jason is a top-notch fantasy baseball analyst and a great guy to just talk with about the game. And Derek is a really interesting interview and another terrific fantasy analyst in multiple sports and an award-winning podcaster. And as you heard, also a very interesting guy to talk to. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast or a bad old joke is available. 
please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to wherever you catch your podcasts and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, which helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with another Friday News and Notes edition featuring National League and American League news coverage by Nick and Ray, another HQ Spotlight segment, and our regular commentaries. Rob Gordon has the Minor League Minute, Alex Becky with the Frequent Flyer, and I'll be along with my extra innings commentary. It's all coming up, just three sleeps. That's Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.